As an undercover cop in Canada, Pam Barnum helped take down a notorious outlaw biker gang, jumped out of a moving vehicle, and became a federal prosecutor. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back to Game of Crimes. This is episode three. Nobody thought we would make it past episode one or two, Steve. I mean, we are resilient, if nothing else. We kind of wondered that ourselves. But, you know, I got to say, you sound like you're starting a game show. You're like a game show host. Yes. Every time well, that's welcome. because, you know, my name is Morgan Wright. I'm one of the hosts of the show, and I'm here literally with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy. I'm the I older thought- one, but I'm the better looking one. <laughs> Which goes with your... You know, cognitive abilities (laughs) declining there. So, hey, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, The the results are speaking for themselves. You guys have really helped us out. It's been fantabulous, if that can be a word, fantabulous. It is And the support from everybody out there, isn't it, Steve? Oh, it's been fantastic. The the numbers coming in have just shocked us. The uh, I'll tell you one thing that shocked me more than anything was the fact that people had started a fan club, a Game of Crimes fan club on Facebook. I didn't even know you could do such a thing. And we so, want to uh, thank you guys for doing that. We both of Steve and I have joined it. You know, we're, we're adding in our two cents, you know, adjusted for inflation, flattering. about one and a half cents. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're having fun. And you guys, thank you for doing that. We, we, we love this stuff. We love building. What we want to do is build a tribe. You know, people who are committed to this like we are that love these kind of stories and uh, so that's what we want to do, man. We want we want to build this podcast around great stories that we think you guys are gonna like, right, Steve? Absolutely, and that's what makes us different because we bring you the people that actually lived the crime that we're gonna discuss. It's not anybody else telling the story, but the people that actually lived it. Good guys and a couple of bad guys thrown in there. And we're working on some bad girls. What you gonna do when they come? Oh for yeah, you? bad girls, bad girls. Hey, yeah. if we get if we get that one out of California. Ooh, that's going to be a good show simply oh. because of what she did with the Mexican mafia. It's, it's, it will be an eye opener. It'll tell you how violent these people are, how ruthless they are, how they treat females. I mean, it's just horrible what they did to this poor lady. So we're hoping to get her on the show here soon. We're working on it. We're working on it. Right. And so in the meantime, while we're working on it, just a little bit of housekeeping here. Folks, Apple Review, five stars. You guys have done such a great job. We don't know what the magic is. Steve and I are both trained investigators. We've tried to figure out what is the magic, what is in the algorithm. Have you figured it out yet, Steve? Are you kidding? I'm just, I'm happy I can log in every time we do a recording. (laughs) (laughs) All we can tell you, folks, it helps out a lot. So keep giving us five stars. It pushes us up the charts. We are, I mean, we're rocketing up there. Um, We're competing against some of the big names out there. And I think, you know, hey, we're starting to hold our own. So, Really, with your guys' help, make sure you do that. So Apple Review, yes. just give us five stars. And also head on over to our brand-new website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Now, right now, it's a basic site because you crawl, walk, and then you run. So right now, we've got the episodes listed. Uh, but I think, Steve, w- one of the things we're going to do, and we, we talked about coming up with uh, your buddy Kevin's episode, we've got some additional pictures we're going to add. Green River Killer, Dave Reichert just sent me a bunch of pictures. So we're going to add some pictures that we can't put out you know, on the episode, obviously, because it's a podcast, not a movie, mm-hmm. right, Steve? Mm-hmm. You know, All right. It's audio, not visual. Right. So we're going to do that. So head on over there. And when we start having merch and live events, that is going to be your place. Gameofcrimespodcast.com. We also have a mailing list. So we're going to have an email list so we can notify you immediately when stuff's going on. You don't have to rely on seeing it on Facebook or Twitter. We'll uh, email it to you. So we just need a first name and an email and we will keep you in the loop. You know, and one thing we just talked about yesterday, uh, Morgan, is 
We may surprise you every once in a while and have two episodes drop the same week, not just the first week like we did to get yeah. us started here, but it'll be extra, not bonus episodes. It's just going to be an extra episode in the same week. Uh, just because you guys are being so good to us, we want to be good to you. So it's it's uh, you scratch our backs, we'll scratch yours. Yeah, don't touch me, Steve. Just, <laughs> don't touch me. Well, I got poison ivy right now. I'm going to scratch you <laughs> yeah, all over. Don't big touch boy. me. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing too. So when we drop these episodes, if we say it's a two parter, it comes out in the same week. We'll drop our the first part of the episode on a Monday, probably the second episode on a Thursday, and then or the second the part two of that episode, and then we'll go. Then you'll have another episode come out again on the following Monday. So what? fun that will be. And look, uh, like I said, we're working on the Patreon right now. Um, it's not up and running yet. We've got some content. We do have PayPal. So if you want to help us out on PayPal, it's Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com, or you can go to paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever is easier for you and makes your life easier, that's what we're about. Right, Steve? We're here to make Absolutely. it easy for you. That's it. We're, we want to easily take your money anytime we can. So, uh, And, and so what are they going to get what are well, they going to get in exchange for this? So when we get the Patreon going, there's going to be the bonus content. There's going to be the level, the access to the Ask Me Anythings. And right now, everything that comes in, we are reinvesting back in the show for equipment. For we, Steve and I just actually were visiting a studio. So we're going to get in. You know, we're looking at the really upping our game and really turning this into a regular, predictable basket of fun. For you people, just a basket of laughs, a basket of terror, a basket of just crap my pants, Captain. You know, that's what we're after. That's just strange to say, a bucket of fun here. We're talking about some of the worst criminals in the world. <laughs> hey, let me tell you what. And well, but but we have something coming up that's going to show you they're, all of these guys are not the brightest criminals in the world. So, which gets me into that point, folks. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad things that bad people do. We talk about bad things that bad people do to good people. So if you don't have the stomach for it, and if this isn't your bag, baby, as Austin Power says, that's okay. Why, Steve? Because we take these stories seriously. Just not ourselves. I almost thought I was going to have to prompt you for that. <laughs> you might have. I was thinking about something else. I was thinking about dinner tonight. Oh, God. Well, hey, guys, <laughs> let's get this show going. Before we get into Game of Crimes, we got to do now, guess what, Steve? <laughs> Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotter. Blotter. All right. All right, Steve, guess what I got for you this week? <laughs> After last week, I have no idea. After the bacon tragedy. That bacon was a tragedy. Tragedy, uh, that, as uh, Christopher Walken would say. Tragedy. That's, uh, that's as bad as murder. I know. So, uh, actually, this one actually comes from Sarah. Sarah H. <laughs> is funny. And I just saw it on the Twitter feed today, and it's not like it's a police blotter, but it's an it's an example of extreme criminal stupidity. So, uh, this comes from Uberfax. So, uh, they used to live in Arizona before they moved to New York, her and James. And uh, in 2014, an Arizona man stole a diamond that was worth $160,000. 160 large. Guess what? He traded it for $20 worth of weed. Well, that was some damn good weed. It's <laughs> <laughs> 20 bucks worth. What? Am, look, I don't do dope, you know, I, I, you know I, but I I know enough to know that you don't trade $160,000 worth of ice, as they say, uh -huh. you know, as the made guys say, for 20 bucks a weed. What a moron. Well, he must have thought that was cubic zirconia. <laughs> or he's just a freaking idiot. <laughs> uh, Jared's, you know, you, you know, what what is that, you know, the... 
it, what says love, Jared's, you know, he went to Jared's. <laughs> Got me 20 bucks worth of weed. He went to Arizona. <laughs> Ah, well, Steve, there's even a bigger one. Speaking of money, I got a money-related one for to you, too. Did you know at 5 p.m.? Don't know for sure where this is, but police were called to Market Square for a report about a suspicious coin. Investigating, it off, investigating officers found out it was a quarter. Uh, okay. <laughs> and that's it? <laughs> I mean, this makes the paper... <laughs> What? Oh my God! What is this Mayberry RF fucking D? What, what did they think it was? The, um, I don't know. Maybe it was a nickel. Maybe it was a penny. That's God, just who knows. Oh, that's just one where you scratch your head and go, "Okay, boy, really slow news day." First of all, very slow police day, which is not a bad thing. But jeez, I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, but this next one though, I'm telling you, uh, um, um, I'll explain to you in a second why this one's so special to me. But Steve, at 8:28 a.m. A Lamphere Court woman said her son was attacked by a cat, and the cat would not allow her to take her son to the hospital. Wow. <laughs> the, the, what, we got a talking cat here? Hey, listen, Mom, you're not I'm taking a, him anywhere. I'm not finished kicking his ass yet. What is this, Dr. Evil and his little cat here? I mean, I've got two cats. They, they're scaredy cats, literally. I mean, how is a cat going to keep me from taking my son to the hospital? Well, and I'll tell you what, my... my uh, Oldest daughter Monica, her cat. He's pretty vicious. He's pretty rough. But uh, wow, that just that needs a little bit further explanation. Maybe you should go out to wherever that was and pull that police report. Let's see what it says. I, I, I'm going to do some. I'm going to find some real police reports. We're going to get into real police reports. Small town blotters is going to re- lead to the actual police report <laughs> behind that, and we're going to see the heinous, the felonious activity, just the sheer crime wave happening in some of these small towns. Well, and you know the uh, the real fabulous thing about this whole thing would be a former trooper being able to find a police report so good luck to you hey i'll let you know how that goes pal <laughs> that takes shot sorry Had to take i know if that's your best shot if that's your a game i got nothing to worry about yeah. anyway steve did you know a man who lives in fairfield filed a complaint with police on sunday about someone ringing his doorbell and leaving a photocopy of buttocks on his front step the complainant told police that the incident has happened several times in the past two weeks. You want to know the name of the complainant? <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Butts. <laughs> and that's a crime. I mean, is that it, people? That's your A game? You got to oh. step it up here, please. Oh, oh man. You know, Let's see. These, these places where these crimes take place, and that's the most serious crime they could put in the newspaper. That's not a bad place to live. Well, look, let's talk about it, because we both worked small towns. Growing up, I was a small-town part-time uh, deputy uh, marshal in the town of Victoria while I was going to school at Hayes. And, Steve, you're a what? Krusty Butt, West Virginia. What is that? Blue, Blue Blofeld, Blumley? Yeah, I'm, getting, I'm getting messages from people down there wanting your address, just so you know. Really? They're from they're from West Virginia and they know how to type? <laughs> You're gonna find out. <laughs> <laughs> well Steve, here's here's another one. Here's here's another one. I bet you a Fed was involved in this investigation. A deputy this Javier though too, this had to be Javier because he was a deputy. A deputy responded to a report of a vehicle stopping at mailboxes. Guess what? It was the mailman. Oh those suspicious people. You don't want you know, don't piss those people off, they'll go postal on you. Oh please. Unbelievable. <laughs> Well, way to go, Murph. You've just now managed to piss off all the postal carriers. I probably won't get anything in the mail anymore, including my goodie bag coming from Sarah, Jim, and James. Jimmy and James, way to go, pal. 
hey, just remember, I'm here for you. I'm here from the government. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. Yeah, that's right. One of the three <laughs> big lies in the world. You know, <laughs> it uh, wasn't me. I'm those. from the. <laughs> don't go into there. The check, don't go there. No, it wasn't me. The check is good, and I'm from the government. I'm here to help. All right. Yeah. Hey, so let, let's talk about this episode coming up real quick, Steve, uh, and then let's get into it. Um, Pam Barnum was just. Uh, you ran into her at a fraud conference. You know, she. Uh, you were one of the keynotes. She heard you guys speak. I mean, g- give everybody just a quick thirty seconds about how you guys met. Oh, she's well. You know, she saw us and she just fell in love with us and wanted to uh, to emulate us. <laughs> Excuse me. Blow job. Blow job. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it's uh, it's funny because uh, Javier and I travel around the world, and we're starting that up again. We you know have our little keynote speaking. We speak at conferences and and theaters and performing arts centers and colleges and all kinds of stuff. And just happened to speak at a conference that she was at and and made contact. Uh, Pam is probably the last person you would ever expect to be a police officer, which is perfect for working undercover. Uh, we encourage you, you know, after you listen to her episode, look her up online. Uh, and you'll see what we're talking about. Just a beautiful young lady married to a police officer, but we're not going to hold that against her uh, because he might be younger than us and better <laughs> shape. It shows her lack of judgment. Oh, my God. <clears throat> yeah, but you know what? She took it to uh, – she did so well at her, ju- her job as a police officer, she got into undercover sooner than she should have Yeah, you know, because they really needed her. And you got to understand – I think we may have covered this before, but uh, in, in law enforcement uh, – Working undercover females and a lot of these organizations, especially when you're working bikers, you're really nothing more than eye candy. You're there to be seen and not heard. But that's the cool thing about it because she can sneak right in there and glean glean information that they never expect from her. So she's going to tell you the story. We don't waste any more of your time. Well, speaking of hearing from her, Steve, are you ready to play the biggest game of all? The game of crimes. Here we go, everybody. Let's meet Pam Barnum. And today's podcast is brought to you by the letter A, because you can't spell Canada without A, C-A-N-A-D-A-A. So let's welcome Pam Barnum. Pam. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today, Pam. I don't know why you're putting up with us, but thank you. Uh, We are going to so bust your chops because you Canadians are so nice. At the end of the podcast, you'll be apologizing to me for busting your chops. That's how nice the Canadians are. You know, and this is an adult show, so if you need to tune him up, have at it. I will. I will. Well, I'm married to a guy just like the two of you, so I'm I'm used to it. Oh, you You're mean one good, lucky good lady? Lucky, yes. Good lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Physically fit. Well, no, not me, Steve. Not you. Yeah, chunky. <laughs> need to be wheeled into your doctor's appointment. Some people call this a belly. I call it my lower chest. <laughs> your lower chest. That's right. All right. Yeah, well, my, hey. I got to say, my wife says I got to get in shape. You know what? Round is a shape, right? Round is, <laughs> the Bartlett pear is Steve's favorite shape, body and fruit. <laughs> uh, this is going right. to be bad. All right. And so anyway, well, Pam, hey, look, we, we do start. We are busting your chops because you are from Canada. I mean, you knew that, but I don't think the other folks did. So right now, before we get into your whole story, where are you at now? I'm in British Columbia, so I'm actually just about 40 minutes north of Montana. I live in the Rocky Mountains and... I'm on one side, and Glacier National Park, uh, that sort of area, is on the other. So it's a spectacular part of the world. Uh, it's got to be beautiful. Gorgeous. Well, you got an area up there, too, Banff. You know, tell people Banff. about Banff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Banff is amazing, and that's as the crow flies. You know, if you didn't have to drive around the mountains, you could probably be there in an hour or so. But uh, we have to drive around the Rocky Mountains, so it takes about four hours to get there from where I am. Jeez. 
And how do you know we're talking to somebody from Canada? Because she says a boot. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, I have a Canadian accent, but of course, I don't notice it. I feel like I sound like everybody on TV. Oh, we notice. We notice. (laughs) No, but hey, but yeah, so that's cool, Larry, because we were talking about this in our pre-call. I got a good friend of mine. Uh, Jimmy Chu ended up being the chief constable of the Vancouver PD Police Department, but his portfolio during the Winter Olympics up there at Whistler was, you know, the Winter Olympics. That was one of his uh, big, and that's a beautiful area too, Whistler. And you've got a son that does competitive ski racing. I do. Yeah, that's why we ended up here. I was near Toronto in Ontario, and uh, my husband and I both policed in that area. But when we took early retirement and uh, decided to live wherever we wanted. We cruised all over the place and settled on uh, Fernie, British Columbia, which is this little ski town. Actually, Rolling Stone magazine called us the coolest little town in North America. Very cool. Yeah, it's a nice And you didn't want to move someplace warmer? I mean, please. I mean, I know about the spring thaw in Toronto. People walk their dog all during the winter, and then when the spring comes and everything thaws, including the dog poop, it is a very tough smell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you well, know, man, I've been in Toronto many times. I haven't noticed that, but I will keep an I keep a nose uh, for that next uh, time. Just wait for the spring thaw and watch your okay. step. Watch your step. I will. <laughs> this is all useless trivia, everybody. We're going to get down to an interview here in just a minute. Oh no, no, no! It's it's not useless because we're setting the stage. We're setting, as they say, context. Okay. Because well, I meant, actually, I meant Morgan's useless, but I was trying to be nice there. So we yeah. got a Canadian on the show. I'm trying to be nice like her. That's it. That's our <laughs> already reputation. sucking up, Murphy. All right. <laughs> So, Pam, as we normally do when we start these, we want to know about you. So, you know, and we're not talking about uh, third grade and your first boyfriend. We're talking about why would you want to become a cop? You know, what 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 in the hell in your background possessed you? You know, and I'm not being a typical guy, but I'm saying, but you're not exactly six foot tall, you know, 200 pounds. And, um, you know, most women at that time, there weren't a lot of women in policing. So what possessed you to take that plunge? You know, I think it all started when I was younger. My mom was a teen mom, so she had those struggles. She was 16 when she had me, and then she, uh, my sister came along, my dad left, blah, blah. There's not, a, you know, there's no big story there. She remarried someone who uh, struggled in life. He drank a lot, did drugs, grew dope in the basement, and he was really abusive toward her. I remember she was pregnant with my brother, black and blue. He went to jail. We were supposed to tell all our friends at school that he was on a holiday. Um, And I remember thinking, wow, you know, there's got to be something that can be done. So I was always about right and wrong, justice. And when my mom remarried a third time to the person she probably should have met, you know, many years before, because he's amazing, his brother was a police officer. And I remember I was so drawn to all his stories and it was really interesting And he took me under his wing and he said, you know, the first thing you need to do if this is something you want is go to university because it's really hard to get in and I want you to have something to fall back on if this really isn't for you. So I did my undergrad and that's where I got started. Where were you living at the time? So when this was all happening, where were you living? I was living north of Toronto, about an hour north of Toronto. Oh, so, small, so a buddy of mine lives eight hours north in Timmins, the home of Shania Twain, you know, yes, way up there the north. Yes, yeah. Shania Twain. And it's beautiful. And I've been to Timmins. It's a, it's a great oh. spot. Oh, my God. <laughs> the most desolate place. Anyway, but let's get back to that. And what, yeah, what does that have to do with pain? <laughs> uh, nothing? 
It does. We're, Steve, we're connecting here, man. Wait, okay. Okay. Yes, geography of Canada, yes. <laughs> yes. I know about the Peel Provincial Police. I know about, you know, that whole area up there. But let's, so you, you were up there just an hour north of Toronto. Um, so where did you go to university at? I did my undergrad at a university called McMaster in Hamilton, Ontario, and I did my graduate work in law school at Western University in London, Ontario. But but you got your bachelor degree, your undergraduate degree, and then is that when you applied the first time? I did, yes. I applied as soon as I was getting ready to graduate. I applied to policing, and I was very fortunate. Um, I, the stars aligned for being female, having an undergraduate degree, being physically fit and highly motivated. I applied, and within months, I was ha- being interviewed and sent to a police college. And so explain to us in the United States, it's a little bit different, but you know, so tell us what's the selection process. Do you, do you, did you apply originally? Cause you were on what's called OPP, Ontario yes. Provincial Police. Did you apply for that or did you have to go through policing college first to get into OPP? No, I applied to the OPP first. When I was going through all of that, you applied to the police force that you were interested in. And then they had their own selection process. And if you were selected, you did some testing with them. If you made it through that, you went to the Ontario Provincial Police Academy mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks to, you know, you got your uniform, you got organized, and then you went to the Ontario uh, Police College for four months, and you live there. It's like night and day, seven days a week, you're at the police college. And then I went back to the Ontario Provincial Police Academy for an additional three weeks to learn some of the nuances of being a provincial officer as a would be like your state police as opposed to being a municipal officer uh, in Ontario. How many females were in your academy class? Oh, we were probably total I would say 700 officers going. Now that's not just OPP, that's um Toronto, Peel, all of the regional forces in the province have to go there and I would say probably a third. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, we just, uh, well, I'm not sure when this episode will come out, but recently just on Facebook, um, one of my academy classmates from the state patrol, the Hi- Kansas Highway Patrol put out a tweet or in a Facebook post recognizing her. When I went through, I'm dating myself. Um, my first academy was 82. My state academy was 84. She was only the third female in the 50 year history of the highway patrol. So, uh, you talk and about that was around- very similar to us. There weren't yeah. a lot of women, but at the time I applied, uh, we had the we have three different government parties in in Canada and Ontario and more now. But at the time, there was NDP, which is far left, Liberal, which is sort of middle, and then Conservative, which is a little which is more right. And at that time, we had NDP, which were the left leaning, and they were very motivated to recruit um, visible minorities and women. So that was. That was the flavor of the day when I was going through. So the timing. Now, my husband, on the other hand, who started four years earlier than me, his struggle to get into policing, you know, he's six foot one, very like typical fitness kind of guy, wanted to be a police officer, came out of the military, and he had a heck of a time getting um, his application through. So there have been those ebbs and flows in Canada as far as policing goes. And, um, you know, I, I've seen firsthand that those programs are not as effective as the people who put them in place think they will be. There are oh, a lot gee. of people that show up there that have really had no interest, but you know, in, 
for me, I started out making, and this is in 1994, 64,000 base salary and was able to get to over 100,000 with overtime without an enormous amount of effort on my part. So with full benefits. Wow. Yeah. So we pay our officers very, very well. And <laughs> Hold on a sec. My last year as a detective, 1998, I made $30,000. That was with overtime. Whoa. Yeah, that's um, that's not our story here. And it's interesting because we oh, have a first... But, but I got to keep most of my money, unlike Canada. Well, that is... Okay, that's <laughs> the other side. Yes. Uh, when you get to what they call the sunshine list, which is over 100K, um, your, your tax rate, I think, is 46.7% or somewhere wow. in and around there. So, yes. Ouch. Okay. I gave a lot of that back. Uh, <laughs> well, just especially with overtime. Okay, so uh, Morgan's talking about dating himself. I started as a police officer in 1975, long before you were born. No, no, I'm in my 50s. I wasn't going to give that up. (laughs) (laughs) You never ask a lady your age. (laughs) But I started out in 75 at $9,600 a year. And then you worked as much overtime as you could get. I think the most I ever made is, a, and this was a city a municipal police officer, I think the most I ever made was 17000 Oh. Wow. So we did it for the love of it, not for, not for the money. Well, we yeah, always say it. they didn't hire us because we were real smart. We're smart. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, let's dive into this a little bit, too, because um, let's talk about the structure of Canadian policing. I mean, you know, cops are cops, but, but your mm-hmm. structure is a little bit different because nationwide you've got which by the way i won a trivia contest for we're talking about this i know the three names of the rcmp so it was the royal canadian mounted police gendarmerie royale du canada which is a french name and the northwest mounted police which was the original one so you've got rcmp and then tell us about the breakdowns what because you said provincial so our province you know quebec is a province you know ontario is a province right but then you've got regional police you know and uh other ones too so how does that break down well, in Canada, we do the RCMP are our federal police, and they police everywhere that there is not a provincial or a municipal force. So they're in a lot of remote areas, smaller areas. Actually, the community I live in is policed by the RCMP. And then the only two provinces um, in Canada that have their provincial police are Quebec and Ontario, which are the two most populous uh, provinces. And Quebec operates under a different set of not laws, so to speak, but... Um, I know, Quebec is a whole different world, just they're a different. <laughs> they're a different culture, and they have their own way of doing things. So they, they're police, uh, they they really are focused in on uh, the CERC, their, their provincial police. And then the OPP, which is what I was a part of, is the second largest uh, force in Canada next to the RCMP. So we had, I think when I was there, probably 5,200 officers, give or take, and um, the command staff, so everybody reports just to their command staff. I had, the RCMP had no control over anything we did. Uh, they had no jurisdiction, no um, input, and neither did the municipal forces unless we were called in to help the municipal forces do do some jobs, which we were frequently. Uh, that's why when I went to the drug unit, I worked all over Ontario because being, you know, one of two women in a unit of 92 uh, drug cops, uh, and the other woman was a supervisor. So I was the only undercover female. I got 
used up all over the place. So it, it's interesting because... Um, we want to rephrase that. It's not you were used up. <laughs> <laughs> you were deployed. <laughs> I got used up. I'm, I'm, I got used I'm done. <laughs> Nonstop. That's right. Yeah. Hey, well, let's, let's go back to that. Let's talk about... So now you're out of the academy. You're in uniform. What's it yes. like... Um, what and you? So tell us about the selection process for where you were eventually assigned. Because Ontario is a big province. I mean, you, there's a lot of places you can go. It's it's like if you ever watch Nat Geo and the Alaska State Troopers. There's a lot of remote areas out there. So tell us about your selection process, where you ended up at, and how you got there. Well, they ask you to give three locations that you would prefer, and I knew through my step uncle that you always choose a duration posting as one. A duration posting is somewhere that. Nobody really wants to go, but they have to police it. So uh, they, they send people there. And he said, that will show your dedication and commitment to policing. So pick a duration posting, choose where you'd really like to go, and then pick something that you don't really care one way or the other. And the place I really wanted to go um, was just outside of London, Ontario, a community called Tilsonburg, because it had high crime stats. And so I was able to get those. I wanted to go to a place where I wasn't just waiting for a car to drive by once every seven hours on a highway up, you know, in some remote <laughs> spot. I wanted to go someplace where there was a lot of stuff happening. And I lucked out and I got my first choice, uh, which was fantastic. And it was actually in the area where the Ontario Police College is located. We policed that area. So every time I'd have time off in the evening... And I knew I was. I would go to the detachment that I was going to be assigned to. I'd meet the guys. I'd find out what was going on. You know, I'm sure I was a royal pain in the ass because here's this recruit showing up. Like, I don't have time to talk to her. And I was just so excited. My first year on the road, I worked 300 days that year. I was so excited. And also, I was cheap because I was a rookie. So I was the lowest pay grade. So if somebody didn't want their Friday or Saturday shifts or a Tuesday off, I would take it. Mm -hmm. And because my overtime pay still didn't equal what a regular uh, senior guy's pay would be. So it was I loved it. You know, and a lot of people probably don't understand that mindset, but that's very common in the law enforcement community. And I would, you know, uh, obviously here in the U.S. as well as Canada, I would assume that's pretty much worldwide. And, and it. And it's not because you want to – oh, well, let me ask you. Is it because you now have this authority? Did you want to go out and exert that authority over mankind? Or did you have it in your mind that you wanted to go help your community? I wanted, I was in love with being out there because you never knew what was going to happen that day. So the selfish part of me was like, I'm going to show up to work, and I don't know if I'm going to be at an accident all day, if I'm going to be at a domestic, if there's going to be a homicide. I don't know what's happening. So to me, that was thrilling. But it was also – the. People are always happy when the firemen show up, right? Because mm -hmm. they're there, they're rescuing kids. Oh my kittens, God, let's save the, the firemen. Yeah. I know. And, but, but no one's happy to see us when we show up because the one, they're either in a state of trauma and just a victim and, you know, maybe they're relieved, but they're not necessarily happy and overjoyed. And most of the time people are very unhappy when you're there for lots of different reasons. So it wasn't because I got the warm fuzzies from members of the public, but it was because I believed that what I was doing made a huge difference. So if I rescued children who were being abused and neglected and was able to place them in a safe place, that was a big win. If I could get help a woman get out of a domestic situation, big win. Uh, and also, you know, having to deliver Death notifications was the worst part of the job. Like, oh, yeah. There's a lot of yeah. crummy parts of the job. And nobody can appreciate that because 
for anyone who's had to do that, it's like it is life changing. Watts is Watts is enough. Oh, and and they know as you walk up to the door, they know before they or when even it's two o'clock in the, the morning. Door. Oh, when it's two o'clock in the morning, which I had to do, you're knocking on a door in uniform. No good news comes at two o'clock in the morning no from somebody news. in uniform. Yeah, and you I had to are do, not. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say I had to do five of them one time in one week. Oh my goodness! Uh, it was just, uh, it just like I had to come home and bury my head. But um, yeah, but but just continue on because a lot of people don't realize the emotional toll it takes when you've got to go up there and deliver the worst news somebody's probably ever had in their life. You know, the one thing I I do wish they would have spent more time on, and I think they do now, nobody ever taught you how to deliver a death notice. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. like you walk up to the door and say, I'm sorry to tell you, your son's dead. See ya. Mm-hmm. You, know, you feel a moral obligation to stand there oh. and try to offer comfort, whatever little comfort you can to these families. It's very 100%. hard. 100%. And, and, and then when you finish, now you're off to your next call. And mm-hmm. you show up having just dealt with that. And now you're in a new situation and people expect you to have this, I don't know, superpower that you mm-hmm. can just leave everything behind and you do your best, uh, of course, but you're a human being. And I think mm-hmm. that so often, and I, it's no different for women or men in this situation. Right. It's just as challenging for everyone. We just show it differently depending on who you are. But Man, I, I remember, those are some things I remember like they were yesterday. I remember the mm-hmm. weather. I remember what the house mm-hmm. looked like. I remember who the victim was. I remember those because they just entrench in your mind. And um, it, it, th- that's a part of policing the public doesn't They don't know see. about. Right. Yeah, I had, a, I had a homicide investigation one time. I get called out. I'm the duty detective. A car was found, windows busted out, blood spatter. We figured the worst, right? So we're trying to track this down. We finally get the patrol aircraft up in the air. We find a body down by the riverbank. Oh. Um, and then you've got to go knock on the door, you know, and you, like you say, you know, tell them. And that was the worst part, too, is then they then the two questions they always had is why? You know, why did this happen? You know, how always came second, but can never answer the question why. I, I don't know why at this point, you know? Right. And and, it's, a, it's a traumatic event for the police officer. I mean, it, it obviously it is for the family, much more so for them, but... Uh, it's like you say, you're expected to, to wear this steel, mm-hmm. show no emotion. You know, you're supposed to have a poker face all the time, and it's just tearing your heart up. And, you know, you look at what's going on now here in the United States, especially with the anti-law enforcement sentiment. Most people that get into law enforcement, whether they'll admit it or not, do it because they want to help their fellow man. They yep. want to do good. 100%. So. And we do have those issues in Canada. They have trickled uh, across the border very aggressively. Uh, with anti-policing. I have friends, obviously many friends still in policing, who have been refused service in restaurants uh, refu- and, and are now concerned about going through drive throughs of what's going to end up in their yeah. sandwich or their Several coffee. Several cases here, absolutely. So it's, and, and I'm, I, I'm shocked, but at the same time, I'm, you know, these, well, we could talk about that all day, and uh, my husband and I have spent many evenings uh, discussing how, unbelievable it is but also how grateful we are that we're not having to deal with that right now like it's just we feel so lucky that when we were there there were definitely challenges but oh my like i didn't have to worry about if someone was going to spit in my coffee or worse god bless Um, god bless the men and women in uniform right now law enforcement worldwide huge huge respect yeah yeah it's and, and look it's 
you know, do you think if I was my age now knowing what I know, or if I was then, but coming now knowing what I know, would I get back into the profession? And that's, that's a good philosophical discussion. We'll have to have over a few beers, eh? But uh, well, <laughs> <I> <laughs> you're right. So. Yeah, but none of that Canadian stuff. We've got to have good Belgian beer. <laughs> You know, <laughs> Molson. Don't don't try and get me to drink Molson. Not going to happen. Oh, you don't know what you're missing. You got to drink it oh lukewarm. We'll have. Uh, all right. We'll talk. We'll talk beer later. So, <laughs> hey, but look, but you, but but you but you are in uniform. You're like you said. You're working this up. I'm the same way. I can't believe you're paying me to do this. You know, I yes. can work for free. Show up. You know, stay overtime. Um, what was your what was your route? Uh, actually, let me, before we get into this, what's the stupidest thing you ever did in uniform? Oh my goodness, there's so many. Um, <laughs> well tell us the best one then oh okay well so my driving um you know i i go through all the police vehicle operations and things and i i was a good driver but i wasn't as great as a lot of the guys were you know because we had rear wheel drive i wasn't used to that and all the stuff going on and I don't know how many times i got stuck or trying to do a three-point turn and (laughs) in the ditch the tow truck driver, Wally, uh, knew me so well that I was buying him, you know, cookies and things and bringing stuff to him because he never told the guys I worked with. He's like, we'll just keep this between us. I know what will happen if, if I tell it. We'll just keep it between us. So I had his number I would call. I got to call Wally. So that uh, that was definitely one. Another uh, first oh, couple of weeks out on the job. And um, we're, we're, my coach officer was big into traffic, like, and especially impaired drivers. Like, if we didn't get about four or five impaireds on a shift, he felt we weren't doing our job. Like, he was able to spot those, like, I don't know how. So we pull over a guy, clearly impaired. So I walk up to the vehicle, and I'm trying to have a conversation. I'm asking him the questions, and my coach officer is like, he's impaired. Get out of the vehicle. You're under arrest. And I was like, you know, I'm trying to, you know, establish this case. He goes, case? Like... He crossed the line about 10 times, could have killed somebody. So that was, you know, I was like, I couldn't believe that he was just doing, taking control like that. I thought I had to have this big, long conversation around everything, but he arrested him, was done. And, uh, and then the last, I think is I was driving an impaired to the station and I got T-boned by a second impaired and it was just, you know, (laughs) Oh man! And then the guy in the back's like, "You should let me go. That guy's drunker than I am. He just hit a cruiser. Like, what are you doing?" So, oh, when I was a state trooper, I, I don't. I mean, different story. But we were doing what we used to call saturation patrol. So you bring in a bunch of troops, and you. So um, I'd already arrested two DUIs, like within what we call driving under the influence. Two DUIs within like. 90 minutes of each other and they're going, Hey, you know, just give us a break. You know, you know, just take a little while before you come back in. I I was walking down. I walked out of what's called the law enforcement center, walking to my patrol car. This car comes bouncing off the curb into the parking lot. And it goes, officer, I want to tell you about drug dealing that's going on. I was back upstairs (laughs) with the drunk two minutes later and they go, where's that? I say, I keep a spare one in my trunk for just such emergencies for stats, you know? Uh, you know, <laughs> and the story you were telling, Pam, about uh, the tow truck driver keeping it between you two guys, you know, for our listeners, most of you know, I'm sure we have a lot of law enforcement listeners, but in case you don't, you cannot have thin skin in law enforcement because oh, no. if your fellow officers find a weakness, male or female, 
you, <laughs> you're going to live a rough life for quite a while. Oh, law enforcement oh. is one of the best equal opportunity places because if you've done something, everyone is going to crap on you. It doesn't matter oh, race, sex, totally. origin. Like, yeah. They knew I loved animals, and I hit a deer with the cruiser one time, so I had to shoot it, and I didn't bring the rifle with me. I had to shoot it with my handgun like six times, which was a horrible experience. Oh, did, why, did you miss the, the first rest. five times? Yeah, I, well, it just wouldn't die. It was like a super deer. And then... All I see is the dead parrot sketch from Monty Python. He's dead. He's bereft of life. (laughs) I was, you know, a little bit shaken by that. So I'm telling the guys, of course, they're teasing me, telling me I killed Bambi's mom. All the deer are going to die and blah, blah, blah. And so there's this little kitten uh, when we pull in at the end of night. It's like 7 o'clock in the morning or something. It had been cold. And the new shift is getting ready to start. And there was this little kitten underneath. The car, I guess it had crawled in to get warm or something. So one of the guys had the hood up and said, don't use the car. There's a little kitten. We're trying to get it out. He said, can you drive me home? Because he never drove his own car. He always, he was a senior officer and we just drive. He lived like two minutes away. So I drive him home. I come back. The hood on that cruiser's down. There's red liquid going down through the driveway. Oh. And I was like, what the hell? So I come in, I'm like, guys, what happened? And they're like, well, we had to get that fucking cat out of there. Like, so we did this. And I was like, I was so angry. And then I could hear this little kitten meowing in the tall grass. They're like, you better go rescue it. And then I find out they took ketchup and water and put it down the driveway. They got the cat out with some water, didn't like that. So it took off and it was pissed off in the grass. And um <laughs> I thought they killed it. Oh, I was so mad. I was, I wrote, oh. Yeah, these are things we don't tell the public. <laughs> but this is why, this is why sometimes when they go, you cops have a morbid sense of humor. It's like, man, you got to have some levity to lighten up all the you other totally stuff you got to deal with. Oh, yeah. And it's a bonding thing sometimes. You know yes. what I mean? It's like you, you are doing a job that the majority of people not only wouldn't want to do, but they are not capable of doing. Right. And I think that that come I had the best shift I had a great detachment of guys like I definitely have no complaints around that of course were there people I worked with that were jerks sometimes a hundred percent oh yeah of course and when yeah, I became like a lawyer same yeah. thing you know it's like then you became the jerk <laughs> then I became the jerk that's right so it's um yeah you just I think it's important to feel a sense of team and commitment yeah. to oh yeah fellow have officers. good shift partners yeah Totally. I remember stop before I became a detective, uh, still working the roads, you know, as a trooper. And I remember it's the old thing. You stop people and they, do you know who I am? Well, sir, if you're, you know, if you can't remember who you are, I used to turn in these driver uh, complaint cards to the Department of Revenue, which handled the driver's license. Subject did not know who he was. That's what I turned in one time. <laughs> but, but one of the best ones, the guy's going, I'll have your job. I said, buddy, you can have my job because you got to deal with assholes like you. And that was one of the letters I had to write. Dear Captain, well, I was, nobody was more shocked than I was. when. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly right. And that same terminology is used that's across right. the United oh, States. It is universal. Yes. Oh, my. Yes. So, so you're out there, the great, hey, by the way, the only thing worse than hitting a deer in Canada are them frickly, frickin' spindly leg moose. Oh, the moose. moose They're will, dangerous. No, seriously, so they'll dangerous. kill people. They, mm-hmm. they sit so high, you hit them at their knees, and they come right back through your windshield, don't they? Mm-hmm. they do, and two officers were killed by moose, actually, oh, man. Uh, while I was working. It was, you know, it's up north, the weather's bad, they're there, and, you know, you're, you're getting to a call. or Yeah, it was, it's, it's tragic, for sure. The wildlife is... Uh, is really dangerous in in parts of uh in ontario for sure man yeah like i said you just 
and by the way, I don't, I don't know if it's like Canada, but in the United States, more officers die f- from accidents mm-hmm. than they do almost from anything else. I mean, that's been one of the big things. Is you, mm-hmm. I used to tell people, man, you don't do anybody good unless you get there. So yeah, that's so slow true. the hell down. Well, let's let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about you know you're finishing up in uniform at some point, Miss Overachiever. You decide you want to go work <laughs> in the drug unit. And not only are you doing that, but let's, we got to talk about law school because a master's degree isn't enough. Now you want to not only join the drug unit, you want to start going to law school. So how drunk were you when you... I know. Well, I didn't have a TV. <laughs> I, didn't have a, I didn't have a boyfriend, a TV, uh, anything else in my life. I just had work. And I thought, okay, you know, there's, I got to do something else. So I missed school and I had... So I did graduate school while I was in uniform just before getting to the drug unit. And then as I was accepted, or a short time into the drug unit, I was ex- and then I was accepted into law school. Well, let's talk about getting into the drug unit. So um, normally it takes five years, but again, Miss Overachiever, you did it. And how did you manage to do it in three? Well, a couple things, and I will be the first to admit, female, blonde, young, definitely came into play because I'm not going to be delusional and think that um, that that wasn't a part of it because I they wanted a female in that unit for specific roles. The other thing, though, is I wrote more warrants, had more confidential informants and, you know, turned over and confiscated more drugs than anyone else in my area. So I was very motivated and very driven. And I was fortunate that one of the guys in the drug unit who his jurisdiction was my area, he noticed that I was turning, uh, that I had lots of informants, lots of dope coming in. And so he started inviting me to be the uniform to come to search warrants because they need somebody there in uniform and you're going to catalog some stuff. So I was really lucky that I was able to do that. And I did a great job and they noticed And they said, look, we have an opening coming. I think you'd be perfect for it. Of course, they never said it's because I was female, but I knew because there were no other women. Right. So that you knew um, of that you that I knew of of. that I knew of. (laughs) And we're not not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, we just don't know anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Well, that I was pretty sure. I was pretty sure at that time. (laughs) So But, um, but, but what you're saying is you earned that slot. I totally earned it for sure. And I recognize that I I brought a lot with me. There was, you know, the whole package coming in with Mm -hmm. being very driven, understanding the law and really focused in on that part. You know, I I loved the criminal work. And at first, when I first started policing, I I didn't think undercover work would be where I would go. I thought, you know, maybe it's going to be, we had a woman uh, by the name of Kate Lines, who was an inspector at the time, and she had gone to Quantico and she was doing profiling. And I thought, you know, I would love to do that. It'd be so interesting. And I was fortunate to be working on a couple of shifts where there were homicides. And of course, the detectives, you know, they let you stay on guard, but you're listening and you're hearing everything mm-hmm. that's going on. And I was really intrigued. But it was so long and so tedious, I found. Like there's, people don't, you know, those TV shows don't show you the minutia of policing that every tiny, excruciating little detail and how, and I just... That's not how my brain, I don't operate like that. I want, you know, let's do big picture. Let's get going. And and not to say that drugs doesn't have a lot of that as well, but it's just, it interested me more for lots of different reasons. Because there's a lot of other crimes that go along with drugs. I think drugs are right. really the foundation of most crimes. Well, Steve and... doesn't know a whole lot about that aspect of it. I mean, you might need to tell him just a little bit more about working drugs and guns. No kidding. <laughs> Well, you know, it's one of those things when when I joined DEA, I thought, yeah, do I want to work drugs for the next, you know, the remainder of my career? 
But boy, when that first case came around and you saw, you know, we seized 400 kilos of cocaine in the Caribbean islands, I'm like, dude, I'm in. I picked yes. the right job. Yes. Hey, yeah. But you got into the drug unit, but it, you didn't start off exactly like you talked. You actually used a term, and I want you to tell people mm. what that term was. You retreated. We, we had to have a discussion for a minute to say, okay, what does this mean? So when you first yes. came on, how were you treated? Well, I was treated well, but I was assigned arm piece work. And I still despise the term, but I take ownership of it now because I feel like if I can own it, then it's, it is what it is. But so I was immediately, sometimes when you go into the drug unit, you just spend a lot of time writing warrants, cultivating informants, doing that. And there's only a select few that actually do undercover work. And then from there, even fewer that do long-term undercover, where you go away for months at a time, live with, you know, different identity, et cetera, and really immerse yourself into the drug culture. And I knew I wanted to do that. I knew I would be good at that, but they were not interested in sending a female alone. And and actually our ops sheets, I still have one. Um, it had the situational awareness and essentially demerit points. So if the drug dealer is dealing in this kind of drugs, there's X amount of points for it. If they're unknown, X amount of points. And it's interesting, experience, uh, if you had less than five years experience in drugs, you got a demerit of five points. If you were female, you got a demerit of five points. So really? just by nature of being female, you're, the project is at a higher risk because women bring a whole new, you know, I don't know, uh, Steve, if anyone told you, but drug dealers really don't respect women all that much. They haven't no. caught up to the Me Too movement. Oh, no. um, See, this is a lot of revelations for Steve, I'm telling you. It Dude, is. His, yeah. Especially the, you know, the Hispanic culture, they respect all the women. That's it. That is it. So, you know, we um, we we had lots of interesting conversations around it because I thought, you know, hey, I can do this. This is no problem. But I started doing what they called arm piece work. So a guy would be working for months at a time somewhere or even just a few weeks. And everybody, the drug dealers want to know, well, where's your girlfriend? Like, what, what's your problem? Uh, you know, how come you're not sleeping with, you know, these six strippers and this girl who we've offered to you and this and this and what's going on? And there'd be like, so now they make the call. Okay, I need a girlfriend. And then that's where I show up and walk in and, and do this project for you were the dd you know, the designated date i was the designated date but the cool thing was some of the guys that uh had requested and then i end up working with because i never meet them before right you show up you work your story out or whatever some of them were amazing because they'd be like you know what go buy here's the guy go see if you what you can get go check this out i haven't been able to get into this guy go see what you can do and so it was really i remember the very first time that happened it was in a strip club in Niagara Falls and it was the first time I did a hand-to-hand coke deal and it was because that officer who had been there he knew he could go and do it because he had the ins but he said go go do it and I did and it was just okay now I I feel I have that confidence yeah yeah and it's you know and, and people think I'm joking when I say this but you're actually become addicted to cocaine, but just in a different way, or, or you become 100%. addicted to narcotics yeah. because it, it is so exciting. It's, it's funny you should mention that. When you go back and you read some of the history, I've got some friends that came out of the uh, CIA, and when they were doing operations in Moscow, they finally realized they needed to change the game, and they used the first female intelligence officer, case officer, and the Russians had oh. no clue because the Russians were so male-oriented. They thought only men were spies. They only thought men were case officers, and she, she was able to 
get away with running an operation, you know, you know, and an asset for quite a while. And that was the thing too, is I remember nobody, everybody, everybody expected the guy to be the problem, not the woman. It's like, oh, you, you got to be legit because you're a woman and there are no women. And, and you know what? Criminals talk, don't they? Probably they knew that there weren't any women or hardly any women UCs working for the OPP. Yeah. Thankfully, we didn't have social media like we have now, which would take pictures and share everything. Oh, my. Oh. The, the, the game has changed considerably uh, since then. But um, And thank yeah, you for it, working it in the great. reference to our podcast, Game of Crimes. That's why this it's all a game. It, it really is. This is really a game. It's about you getting yeah. something from them, making them believe that you're somebody you're not in order to put them in prison. You know, that's the game. Yeah, and you're on 24-7. So it's not like you just go and do a buy and bust where you're out on your shift and you try to make as many hand-to-hands as possible. It's it's a different world where now there are some days you make no buys, you're just trying to make inroads. And starting street level where you show up in a town, complete unknown. And, and nobody you trusts you. Nobody yeah. trusts you, especially them. They're the most suspicious, paranoid people on the planet, drug dealers, and for good reason. And now you've got to start hanging out. You have to be seen, but you have to be seen in the right way. And you have to have a certain, so, you know, the, it it can be very, um, it's complicated, but it's interesting because you have to be on all the time and you've got to remember your story and know what that's all about. Got to know your legend. Well, while this was going on, you happened to speaking, you were, you were single, but you didn't end up staying single doing this <laughs> undercover work. So we got to hear this story about, uh, how you met your husband doing, cause those nights in Canada, they get long and lonely and cold. That's <laughs> yeah, very hey. dark. <laughs> so what, very dark. tell us the story behind that. Well, I was assigned to my first long-term undercover project, which was going to be 10 months. And I was ex- super stoked, but the reason I got it was because the other guys didn't want to do it. And Kevin, who turns into to be my husband, was legendary in the drug unit for lots of reasons. One, he got probably more buys and more bodies than anybody else. He was just incredible at drug work. He loved it. One project he did up in up north in Sault Ste. Marie did barefoot for eight months. Like he was just, he, he was just, he marched to the beat of his own drum, let's just say. And he had super long hair and he just you know, very contradictory to what you would think. He didn't wear the NARC starter kit. I called it the NARC starter kit when I went there, which was like the biker t-shirts, the yeah. the, the boots <laughs> and the jeans and stuff. Kevin wore, uh, you know, like a Hawaiian shirt. and He's a beach bum. Fashion. He was totally a fashion dude, you know, he'd go out there. And it was interesting because he stood out so much. And he was assigned to this project and they were looking for a partner for him. And so finally, my boss, uh, who had the nickname Huggy, because he was like Hug Cat from, um, or, you know, Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch kind of guy. So he uh, he said, okay, you know, Robinson, you're in then, because, like, I'm out of options, essentially. So uh, you're going to go, uh, you're going to meet your new husband at the golf tournament next week. And I'm, I'm like, husband? And he's like, well, you're going to be married. Like, that's the whole story. And I thought, okay. I met Kevin, who was swimming in the pond, diving for golf balls at the golf tournament. Um, And so your first impression of this is, I got to work with this guy? That's right. I'm like, okay, really? And he had his hair was all braided with these beads in it, like macrame beads. What is he, like Rastafarian or something? Well, he just had done a different project. (laughs) And so he's changing up his look and with highlights like his professionally highlighted hair and things. And I thought, oh my God, first of all, I don't want to work with 
We're going to have to get a picture of that. <laughs> oh, wait till I see. He was acting also at the time and had made it to the final cut for Beastmaster. One of the pictures, I wish I had it handy. Waxed chest, this steel thing, a big sword. Like, <laughs> it was, he was like crazy. But I thought, okay, so here's here's who we are. Here's where we're at. So we meet up. We're at the golf tournament. Two weeks later, we're assigned to this project. We show up and we have to get our backstory straight. And I can't say, like, I lo- Kevin was okay, but he was definitely not somebody I would have ever been attracted to. And I don't think that I was his type either because I was very, I was hiding my law books in the in the false ceiling. I was very, you know, rule follower. Here are the rules that the drug <laughs> unit puts down. I will follow as, these as rules. As a future lawyer, yeah. You gotta <laughs> follow the rules. Gotta follow the rules. Follow the rules. <laughs> so I'm, you know, Miss Goody Two-Shoes and then I've got this guy. And, you know, we, we worked really well together. I think that those two opposing ways of doing things really meshed well. But I remember our cover team saying to us, you know, you guys have to actually look like you like each other. You're walking down the street like you're a couple of bushwhackers or something. Like, you just don't look like a couple. We're like, no, that's what real couples are like. They're not all over each other. They're just acting indifferent toward one another. So, of course, as the project moves on and, you know, we're there for 10 months, eventually we end up together and then the project ends and uh, we got married but um yeah it was very it was interesting times for sure to live as a fake couple with somebody you're really not overly interested in but you know I think that works out well because you're not trying to impress them so I'd get up in the morning I didn't care what I looked like I didn't care what was going on I didn't care what he looked like it didn't matter he was my colleague nothing more so you could be totally honest with each other and I think that that's that was good. Now, the one time I thought about kicking him to the curb is when he vomited in my hair. I thought, oh. you know what, this is not going right. to work Class, out. Backstory. Classy Let's dude. Come on, backstory on that. Classy dude. We, we have to get to this party in another area. So we're working this couple of towns, and then there's this other smaller community they want us to go into. Allegedly, there's a drug problem. So we show up at this little restaurant. I said, what's going on in town? They said, well, there's a big party with cheerleaders and football players and stuff. So it was the Montreal Alouettes and the, I think the Toronto Argonauts or something along those lines. And they were going to be having this party. So we're like, Kevin's like, Hey, well, even if nothing happens, there's cheerleaders, right? Like what could go, you know, that sounds great. So we get there. There's a guy that we immediately identify as someone who's likely um, someone we want to meet as far as drugs go. So Kevin buys this soapstone pipe off of him and a few, like he's just a loon, this guy. And then we separate, and I see Kevin with the Jello shooter tray. I'm thinking, okay, he's oh yeah, meeting people. He's got. What do you mean the whole tray? The whole tray. (laughs) So I'm trying to meet other people and talk, and then all of a sudden I hear the music change to Gloria Estefan's like Congo line uh, kind of music. Miami Sound Machine turned the beat around. Totally. And so there's Kevin leading the Congo line with all of these cheerleaders. One's, you know, up here when he's swinging them around, they're doing this whole thing. And I'm like, oh my God. So I'm like, okay, I think it's time to go. Probably not going to accomplish a lot more here tonight. So I get him into our Jeep. I strap him in. I'm driving home and he's totally quiet. And it's February. So I've got the heat blasting in the Jeep, right? And he's hammered. We pull into our undercover apartment parking lot. I go around. I open up the door. He turns like the exorcist and just projectile vomit in my like on my clothes, in my part of my face, and my and the worst part was my hair. I had spent so much time on my hair that so and it's just everywhere. And then I had to fireman drag him into the apartment. 
Oh, uh, just like, cause I, I contemplated leaving him there. I thought, but he'll freeze to death and then I'll have to do a lot of paperwork. I'll have to explain all of this. You know, I so. hate the paperwork. That's I what everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> you saved him because you didn't want to do the paperwork. That's true 100%. love. 100%. True That's love. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so how long have you been married now? Uh, we just celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary on um, last week. So, well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, you. Did you ever get him back for throwing up in your hair? Oh, I never, I didn't throw up, but I'm sure I did lots of things that were <laughs> passively aggressive. Oh, yeah. Throughout. <laughs> so, but, and I bring it up every once in a while to him. I remember that time you threw up in my hair. Yeah. Well, I'm going on 34 years. I think Steve's going on 35 or six, wow. but I tell people, I say, hey, look, I'm lucky. My wife could have killed me and been out with good behavior in 15 years. So, oh, yeah. Well, you got oh, you got to be careful too, because as you get older, you know you got life insurance, and some of those policies escalate, true. so you end up being worth more a lot dead than you are alive. Yeah, that's right. This is true, and people, you know, you know the ways to do things that don't leave a lot of evidence. We'll, we'll, or... we'll talk about this later. I told somebody <laughs> there is a perfect way to commit a crime and get away with murder, but it's not the way people think. And I'm not going to tell you on this podcast because I will not facilitate things. I'll tell you when we're done and you'll okay, see what I mean. Okay, I've got my own idea about that. <laughs> no, I tell you, this is this is brilliant. I come up with these ideas. They're just way out there. But uh, <laughs> hey, but but uh, so you're married now, but you're still doing undercover work. And eventually um, you are with child mm. and you are still slinging dope. Yes. <laughs> you're buying dope as a pregnant mom for the, sh- the shame, the shame you drug-induced, well, you know, future in my mom? defense, in my defense, I didn't even know I was pregnant till I was, you know, 20 weeks along or so, or five months. I remember that I was, Kevin and I, you know, we're getting into our mid-30s at this time, mid to late 30s, and we're like, okay, we got to do this, because, like, we're not getting any younger, and we got to get organized. So I think, okay, I'm having trouble getting pregnant. I better go to the doctor. So I go, I go for the ultrasound, and then the doctor comes in, which is really unusual. Usually the tech, you know, you do the ultrasound, they're like, the doctor will call you. Well, he comes in, he said, um... Mrs. Barnum, the reason you're having trouble getting pregnant is because you are already finished your first trimester. And he must have thought, this is the dumbest <laughs> woman I've ever met in my life. You know? And you're a highly trained investigator at this I was, point. And but, I'm you know, I was busy. I was so busy. I didn't have time to think about all that stuff. So, yeah. So then I'm like, okay, well, I went and told my boss and they don't want you pregnant, like you said, slinging dope. So... They uh, sidelined me to some paperwork and um, I did some fraud stuff. But then also the largest uh, grow in North America was happening around this time. And my husband had gone to the canine unit. So he left drugs right after our project. I stayed in drugs and he did some canine work. And uh, so we both got to work on that project. I did paperwork on it. I didn't get to do like any fun stuff. but. Yeah. Um, and Kevin was there with the dog. So it was really, it was the first time since we had, you know, worked undercover together that we had been then on the same, same deal. So again. I, should I state the obvious pun you're saying his career went to the dogs? He loved it. I'm here all week. No, canines are fun. I'll tell you what. Uh, and yeah. in fact, I learned this from a DEA guy. They were training some of the customs back in the day. Some they're active and they're passive dogs and active dogs will scratch and do stuff and passive dogs will alert, you know, and then sit. And they realize that if you use an active dog screening passengers that are coming off a plane and some guy's trying to hide a kilo uh, down near his scrotum and that that's an active dog, <laughs> it costs some injuries yeah. apparently is what I understand. So they yes. went to passive dogs. <laughs> yeah, it's fast. I love seeing the dogs at the airport. It's always so interesting. But you know, when I was in the drug unit, Kevin and I went on our first trip. 
I think I took like, you know, cause you put your bags in the trunk and we each, I had an undercover car that you keep all the time. And of course you're transporting dope and stuff. And then we're getting to the airport. We're like, Oh my God, what if some of the scent of the stuff is in our luggage and oh, then yeah. we're going to be pulled off and secondary then like a, you know, I, I probably looked so nervous. That's why I did get secondaried, but not, I don't think because of that, probably because I was like looking, you know, like <laughs> typical nervous person. So. Well, at least, you know, if they found dope, you would have had an excuse. Oh, I forgot to book the evidence. Yeah, we've heard <laughs> yeah, that before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, so you, you were doing this, but but when did you start the law school thing and studying? When did you enroll in law school? Was that after you, I mean, obviously after you got on the drug unit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was just, I finished my master's degree while in the drug unit, and then I started law school. How long did you wait between getting, I mean, isn't that punishment enough? You're working undercover, you just finished one degree, and now you want to, for the love of God, why did you want to become a lawyer? Yeah. You know, because I loved school, it sounds bizarre, and I knew to do a PhD, I would have to leave policing. You cannot do a PhD part-time, you have to really immerse yourself, and I thought, okay, what else can I do? That's interesting to me, but I don't have to leave my job. And law school was that. Now, you're not, you can't in Canada go to law school part time. There's no such thing as, you know, online learning. Well, now I guess with, you know, the pandemic, et cetera, but there was no distance learning or showing up to only so many classes. You had to commit to full time studies or you get kicked out. And I, you know, I said I would commit to that, but I knew that I wasn't going to commit to that because I had no intention of leaving my job. And I got called into the dean's office partway through first year because I had skipped so many classes. So I was working on an undercover project at that time where I was able to uh, be home on Tuesday, Wednesday. So those were my days off because, of course, you need to work weekends, et cetera. So I would leave the project first thing Tuesday morning, drive four and a half, five hours back to where I lived, go to school all day, get up, do Wednesday classes, then drive back and then work drugs Wednesday night. And it seemed to be working out already, except I was missing a lot of classes. So when he called me in, I said, you know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to, I, you know, here's what I do for a living. It's impossible for me to do what you're asking. My grades are still great. I haven't made, you know, any, there's no issues with any of that. So I would ask for an exception. And fortunately, the dean was very pro-police, which I know sounds probably Mm -hmm, shocking, mm -hmm. um, but very pro-police and went out of his way to make sure that nobody questioned where I was or what I was doing. Um, And I I had a a really, you know, law school is hard for sure, but um, it's not that getting in is hard. Law school is not really that taxing. And I think having a policing background was probably helpful as well because I could see it was helpful in some ways and a challenge in others because I thought okay this is what it says in the book nobody does it like this no. this makes no sense yeah. so you read the that, book oh forget that <laughs> yeah. here's how it's really done in the field this is yeah. how you really do it yeah it's like that first DUI he's impaired you don't have to ask a thousand questions exactly <laughs> you know how many reports exactly. I saw that were like saw drunk arrested same he says that's all you need you know saw drunk arrested same you know <laughs> I think yeah. we might need a little more detail than that. I told a rookie one time. So, but uh, hey, but but so but you're so you're going through law school. So how long how long was how long traditionally is law school in Canada? Four years. Oh my god! So you three, guys really run them. Yeah. It's like doing a whole nother undergrad degree. It is. It's three and a year of articling. So what's that? What um, it's where it's like having a coach officer, a coach lawyer. So you show up. And a senior lawyer guides you through. So you, it's sort of like a co-op almost. You're working as a lawyer. You're like an apprentice, have, basically working as an, an apprentice, apprentice lawyer. 
And I, I lucked out because, of course, uh, being an OPP officer, we're under the umbrella of the Ministry of the Attorney General. And that is our prosecutor's office as well. So I apply, of course, I had to apply to go through the whole thing, but I was fairly confident I was going to get it. I had great grades and I knew the area, et cetera, but I applied. How long were you on I, OPP at that time? 12 years. So what made you decide you wanted to, what, what was the decision that, what was the point where you said, I don't want to be a cop anymore. I want to be a prosecutor. What led you to that? Was it just, you had enough of being a cop or you just no, wanted to I do something it. new? No, I loved it. I 100% love being a cop. Uh, I Sometimes I still question leaving um, because prosecuting was, it was great, but it didn't have the same fulfillment as policing did. But I have to say being a mom was probably my number one decision-making factor. So I didn't, uh, I loved the road. Going back to the road wasn't frightening. I, I knew I could stay in drugs, no problem. But you can't, it's tough to be a mom when you're traveling all the time. And, and I was so addicted to criminal work and that kind of policing that there's no regular hours. Like you're out all the time, you're gone. And I didn't want to be one of those officers that put my job second. And I know that that sounds, you know, people, well, your family should always be first and everything. And I a hundred percent agree, but that's a career that if you're in not theory, all in, as yeah, Steve knows too, in theory, it yeah, works you can, that way. You love your family more and you're committed to your family. Right. But there's a commitment level to doing the job that um, really requires a lot of sacrifice. And my husband, of course, very understanding. He's a cop as well. So, you know, he would have supported whatever decision. But he was loving being a canine handler. And that doesn't have regular hours. That's a crazy career. And we both wanted to be parents. So I had the opportunity, because of my education, to have a comparable job that paid well and had more regular hours. So that was the decision-making process. If we hadn't had a child, I probably would have never left. You know, that's we tell a lot of people on different episodes, when you go into law enforcement, uh, if, if you're going to do the job and you're going to do it right, and where you're doing what you're supposed to do, it's not a nine to five, 40 hour week job. It's, it's not a career. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle because it affects mm-hmm. every other part of your life, especially the family. 100%. Oh, yeah. You know, when I was a trooper and on call, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you're out of there. Doesn't matter what's going on at seven o'clock when I was a detective and you'd catch a homicide. You wouldn't see your bed for three days and or anybody else. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you miss. I don't think I missed knock on wood. I don't think I miss birthday parties, but it's like, but you miss a lot of stuff. But it's like that this is, you know, it's what you signed up for. And it's very different. And being a woman is very different as well. You know, I remember in it the is? drug unit when we have Steve, our... how does it feel? Steve <laughs> identifies as a woman sometimes on episodes. <laughs> I have my feminine side there. That's <laughs> right. But you, Steve, you probably went to... The, you'd have your parties with your drug guys and stuff. So you'd have, you know, either after a big project or even, you know, Christmas time or whatever. And some of those party spouses come along. So you can imagine I'm the only woman and I'm at these parties with the guys with all their wives. Yeah. And I don't identify well with, you know, small talk about what's going on at home and that kind of thing. But I forced myself. It was almost, I felt like I was almost working undercover at those projects as well. Because <laughs> I 100% stayed with the wives, talked about, you know, whatever the hell they were talking about at the time. I, you know, was interested and doing all of that because I knew, like, I'm going to be living with their husband at some point or working with him or away with him. Professionally speaking. Yeah. Professionally and, speaking. So, yeah. and I can appreciate from, a, you know, a woman, especially one who's not been in 
policing and understand that type of career, it would probably feel very uncomfortable. But, you know, you get to know them as friends, you hang out, you know their kids. Like, I really made it a point. I knew all the guys I worked with kids, knew their wives. I knew even a couple other parents uh, just because I went, I made sure that that was a really important, and I liked it. You know, I did, I did enjoy getting to know everybody because I didn't have that on my own. I lived far away from where I grew up and things. So it was really, it was great, but well, I can, you know, ima- I can, I can imagine it. you going to that party with all those wives and the daggers they're shooting at you out their eyes and like, did yeah. you see what she looks? Look at what she's wearing. Well, if Pam oh, listened to I, me, if yeah. she would have gotten the makeup that made her look like she had meth pock marks and everything else and then got the teeth <laughs> to make it look like she was buck tooth and everybody's going to go, oh my God, how could you live with that thing? That's right. That's right. See, yeah, I, talk talk to me next time. I got guys that used to come out of the uh, special effects uh, disguise uh, division over at the CIA. They'll they'll hook you up next time. There you, you go. Do That's some what undercover I work. Yeah. And you know what? Most but, most cops' wives are are tough women, uh, and 100%. I'm sure cops, female cops' husbands. You got to be tough to a certain degree just because of what you're putting up with. And uh, I'm 100%. I'm afraid of police officers' wives. They will hurt you. They they <laughs> and you know and they have their own uh, camaraderie. Like the the wives in our yep. unit. Uh, were all very tight, super close. You know, they did things together, and which and also had their own lives and careers mm-hmm. and different things that were going on. But I think when you don't understand and appreciate that, when you are a police officer, you're just looking for trouble. Like you really have to understand that they don't know that you just, you know, did this big project or did this big thing. And sometimes they just don't really even care. Like there's a lot of stuff going on at home yeah. that's overwhelming and too much. Yeah. And and I get that totally, and I'm I'm grateful that I had such a good unit of guys to work with. You know, it's funny when uh, when my wife and I first got on DEA, we didn't have the girls at that point, and uh, you know, we're small town country people. We've moved to Miami in the 1980s, and there's cocaine falling out of the sky and washing up on the beaches, and and she's a nurse, and she likes the exciting part, the trauma units and the emergency rooms and ICU and stuff like that. So. We'd knock off a big case, and I might come home at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and she'd wake up. She's like, tell me all about it. You know, it was all exciting. And then when the girls came along, you know, hey, let me tell you what we did that. I don't want to hear that shit. I, you tell me when I'm awake and I have nothing else in my life going on. You know, it's like exactly <laughs> funny how exactly. That, that mom thing totally. kicks in. Yeah. The mom thing, it's like it's – and it's amazing. And there's, there's you know, I would say every, everyone who has the great – blessing of being a mom would be i wouldn't trade this for anything yeah and and it's kind of funny yeah but there are son. some days you want to you want to <laughs> remind them i brought you into this world i take you out <laughs> well yeah that's our son is hilarious he's like okay like two former drug cop parents like lawyer geez you know just well you know when we left we left columbia we ended up in north greensboro north carolina which is a beautiful place to live and if you're out doing the job, you know, you just, you could be gone for a few days at a time. And there were days when I'd come driving up the, in the driveway, I'd get out of the car, you're gathering all your gear together in your briefcase and all your paperwork that you got to do at home and all that kind of stuff. And I would pass her in the garage. I said, Hey babe, how's it going? She said, I'll be back. And you just thought, Oh, okay, babe, I got it. I got it. You stay gone as long as you need to. Yeah. And she go right around the car. I said, what, you know, I mean, later in life, we laugh about it now, but I'm like, what did you do? You need a break. She said, all I do is I'd go to McDonald's, get a soda, and I'd go sit in the parking lot and just have some peace and quiet for an hour. Totally. (laughs) 
Oh, you, yeah, because you're, as a, I know what it's like to be on as a cop all the time, but when you're on as a parent all the time, it's a whole other level of Well, Steve, it, it didn't help that when your boys would, like, come visit, you put them up against the wall, do a pat-down first, you know, and, you know, <laughs> you do, you don't do that? Pers- per- well, I didn't do it in front of everybody, but no. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hey, well, look, you were, you were, you were, you were, you wanted to become a lawyer, so you did the, uh, what it called, articling? I articled with the, what we call the crown attorney, which would be, like, your district attorney, And I did that at the provincial level first, because like I said, I was able to take my pension, my benefits and seniority Mm -hmm. with me. Nice. And yeah, so that was great. Did you do Uh, anything interesting as a provincial or did they just hand you all the crap cases and say, go for it? Well, you start out doing like, it's sort of like being when you're a new rookie on the road, you get the traffic stuff, you get all the small stuff. So I got all the small stuff. Um, which of course, again, you think is like, you know, a big deal sometimes because that's your, it's all new to you. Um, and then an opening came up at the federal, uh, crown with federal crown, which is all drug work. Essentially. There's a bit of tax and a few other sketchy, weird statutes that nobody ever looks at, but I would say 99% of the work was all drug work. And I thought, and they talked to me about it because obviously they knew my background and I thought, oh, you know, this is phenomenal. This is amazing. Like, I would love to do that. And so I took a job there, and it was incredible. It was, you know, I was so working with some of the guys. You're prosecuting everybody's with. cases, right? RCMP, I, Ontario Prevent. Yeah, you're doing anybody yeah. comes in. But your, so but your pension and your benefits carried over to this new job also, right? Not to the federal. Uh, so it was all provincial. So I cashed it out and invested it in things. And so I had to start. But Kevin still had all of his benefits with the province. So we weren't starting at scratch. And, and you know, interesting, with both of us working for the province, we had 100% coverage of everything. 100% of all dental, 100% of all drugs, 100% of everything. Well, that's because you paid 47% of your income back <laughs> to the government. You might as well get some free yeah. shit out of this. <laughs> That's right. Holy cow. Come on. You make it sound like, oh, and it's great living in Canada if you can afford to. Yeah, that's it. No, Canada's. I, 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 you know, our brothers, sisters to the north, we love them. That's that's why we all get along, you know, so good. Yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah, You know, speaking of American police, when Kevin and I were first working or first together, we took a trip to New York City. I'd never been to New York City. We drove to New York. And we're trying to find a parking place, you know, we're just looking all oh, over. Oh, geez, good luck and with that. <laughs> that. So we see these two New York City cops on the side. And so we're like, hey, we're Canadian cops here. We're just here looking. They were amazing. Yes. We had, like, I'm talking, we were just blown away at the hospitality. Uh, same happened in Vegas. So then we're like, okay, well, when we go places, we just we got to go meet other cops that are there because they'll know yep. where to go, what to do, where to stay away from, what's happening. It's just, I have to say, uh, you know, you people read all these terrible things, but I tell you, the police officers, and, and it's obviously there's a, there's a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a, a camaraderie that exists, but they're just incredible people that will go out of their way. I just, and you know, they didn't have to, they could have been like, get out of here. We're busy. But they're like, no, no. Okay. You got this. There's a great parking spot right over here. And there's this and there's that. It was phenomenal. And it's still like that, man. And you know, I was telling some people the other day, when you meet a New York cop and become friends, you got a friend for life. hundred percent. They're phenomenal people. Love and, we were just uh, doing a recording so cool. an interview yesterday, um, which will make it out at some point, but it was the agent involved in the takedown of Victor Boot, the, the merchant of death. And we call him Zach because it would take three and a half minutes to pronounce his last name. It's Polish and it ends <laughs> in an I. And he told me it three times. Like, anyway, 
but that same thing, his first office was the New York office. And they talked about that, about how great the, you know, and, and it is, I've, it is a separate, really a, a great culture, but you know, when you go places, it's like when I was overseas, I'd run into some buddies from New Scotland Yard or you'd be over, you know, certain places like everybody just treats you. Totally. I mean, they because they understand, you know, I think it is the understand. 100%. So we understand how easy it is to be a federal prosecutor because you got cheesy hours now. I mean, you show up, what, nine thirty, ten o'clock with your latte in your hand <laughs> and in a good, work till yeah, maybe two. Putting in a good three or four hour work day there, aren't you? That's oh, man. It. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, my back hurts from, from sitting in this comfy chair all day. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so what, so you started working some cases. There was one I wanted you to talk about. This one bothered me because we've seen this happen before too, but you had a case to where a piece of shit, and we say that on the show because it's a technical, mm-hmm. uh, legal description, <laughs> yeah. a piece of shit. Uh, and the mother, uh, I want to ask you about this too, but the mother traded her 12-year-old daughter for sex for dope. Correct, for crack. Talk, talk about that case. So this, uh, this individual uh, who was accused was charged with um, sex assault or rape, uh, minor, of course, a whole bunch of drugs, uh, proceeds of crime, etc. So he had a lot lengthy... So this could have gone one of two ways. Either the provincial crown could have prosecuted everything, including the drugs, or the federal crown would prosecute everything, including the sex assault. So I put What's my hand the difference? Said, What's the difference between the two? Would he get a longer sentence under the federal than the provincial? No. Or? It's just okay. who does the work and who's paying for the prosecution. Okay. So um, we took it, the feds took it, because it was a significant uh, cocaine case and a significant amount of money. And of course, the sex assault there. Now, we could have did co-counsel with two crowns, but that's a huge waste of taxpayer money. If you have a competent prosecutor, they can do everything. And he selected uh, trial by jury. He could have a judge alone, but he decided to go with the jury. So you select the jury, you do this whole thing. And in Canada, you don't, the accused does not have to indicate whether or not they're going to take the stand until they literally get on the stand. But you always prep as though they're going to. But, you know, 99% of the time they never do. So you do this prep and it never happens. And so... But you got to be prepared just in you case. You got to be prepared. Who, who brought and the case? Where did the case per, come out of? Uh, the case came out of... Uh, that one would have been Barrie, Ontario. So yeah, was that a Was that a local police department or a regional or... No, that was uh, that was an OPP joint with Barry, and I think there was a Toronto component as well. Okay. Uh, but the sex assault occurred in Barry, so that's why. So the drug charges were all over the place, but the sex assault was in Barry. And so, how much how much cocaine are we talking about when we're talking about trading oh, a twelve year old? Oh, she was taking like you know, 80 piece or whatever. Like there was not, it wasn't, she wasn't getting like keys or anything in exchange for her daughter. Now he was caught with keys, but right. she was just trading like for personal use. So when you said, how many that, times did she, go ahead, Steve. You said 80 piece. Can you explain that to the listeners? So it was just, you know, this small little 80 bucks, $80, small little piece of crack cocaine yep. um, that depending on, you know, the amount of use is not, is not much at all. Oh, this is um, nasty. And how many times did this happen with her daughter? Well, the we have no way of really knowing. The daughter uh, was pretty messed up, but there was a couple of occasions that she could remember pretty clearly. And uh, so, and of course, here here we have this young victim. First of all, who's who who's sometimes you know she's living in a in a situation where there's not a lot of people to believe her and to be right. there for her. I don't know what her challenges were at school or with friends, et cetera. Like if she had someone to confide in, but. Finally, 
she did tell someone who told someone who told someone who finally brought it forward and then it was investigated because there's no rape kit done because we find all of this out after the fact. So it's not like she went to the police immediately after um, the assault, had, the rape had occurred. So it was very circumstantial. Was there uh, any kind of a medical examination to show that she had had uh, sexual trauma of some kind or... Uh... You know, well, the, there was a way to tell that she had had she was she had had sex, but um, again, you couldn't necessarily you know, tie it back to this suspect. No, yeah, no defense said not a chance. So we had we had him cold on the on the dope and the gun and the money. So that those charges were solid. We had the evidence. We had him with the evidence. It was a good search by the officers. Dotted the i's, crossed the t's. All that was happening. Where we were iffy was on the rape because. The evidence, he said, she said, kind of thing. But by the grace of God, this individual took the stand. And I thought I had won the friggin' lottery because that just never happens. And I, what I an still idiot. get goosebumps thinking about it. What an, I, what an idiot. It was, oh, hey, it before, was just... Before you get into the story, did you ever... What did this guy think? I mean, it, you know, it's like one of those things... When you've got serious charges like that, the last thing you want to do is open up your mouth. Sometimes you see the defense not even ask any questions because they don't want to keep raising the issue. What made this guy think that he was get, taking the stand was going to be in his best interest? He believed, he was such a narcissist, he believed that he was like a god almost, that women loved him. Everyone loved, like He was flirting with me from the stand. Wow. It was just his, and I'm confident his lawyer, because he had a good lawyer, would have strongly encouraged him to not say or do anything. Absolutely. And he he took the stand. And his lawyer didn't even ask him that many questions, really. Like, it wasn't... Like, first then, question is, are you stupid? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... I was trying... I was trying to control my excitement because I know the jury is watching every move, right? They are paying as much attention to your body language and to your facial expressions as they are to the things that are being said. And do you remember what the and, jury makeup was, male versus female? Yeah, we had more males because okay. here's an interesting fact, at least from my experience and from all the juror research that we've done. Uh, we don't have juror, jury experts like you do in the U.S. The lawyers do all of that. The prosecutor and defense do all of that. But uh, if you have a sex assault, you don't want very many women on the jury. They're more likely to acquit than they are convict. Really? I would have thought it was yes. the other way. I know it's uh, and espe you especially don't want women who are fifty plus. No kidding on the jury. Mm -hmm. That's any. I mean, I'm sitting here going, oh, "Look, I can understand too." As a father, you know, I've got five kids. My youngest is a daughter, and I can imagine if somebody did anything to them, oh hell, put me on the jury, man. I'll pull the switch. I'll do, you know, put the needle in. You know, you whatever, whatever you need from me, I'm in. You know, but but to think though that a mother. You think women would be motherly in terms of being right. protective of children. Right. Why it, did you ever figure out? I mean, I know those are the stats, but did you get any insight behind the stats to say this is why they do that? I th well, we're not allowed to interview jurors outside or after the trial. Uh, but what we found was through research and trial and error, et cetera, is that women in that age group are a lot more judgmental. And this, again, is a broad stroke. So I hope you know your audience doesn't write you and be hostile. Oh, we don't care. Send us hate mail. Comments. We'll read it. I mean, please. but you know, here's the difference though. And this is the difference, Pamela, too. These are the real conversations. A lot of people just do these veneer podcasts. And one of the things that we do is we go deep. I mean, we want to have the, the, like we say, when people ask us if they're being guests, they say, well, how long is your podcast? We say, as long as it needs to be. 
you know, wh- whatever it takes to cover the subject. And this is why, you know, let people complain. But the thing is, you take the world as you find it, not as you wish it was. And the way it is, is that, like you say, they're judgmental. So are they judging then the mother for allowing her daughter to get into that situation and they don't think no, they should blame the guy? I don't, we didn't take, so I think it is all around where you put yourself in those circumstances, how you behave, how, how you take ownership and, and, uh, you know, your own responsibility. So I think, you know, there's this whole movement around women that, you know, we all support each other and all women link arms and do all this. From my personal experience and from the experience of many people that I've spoken to and lots of books I've read and research I've done, women are harder on other women than they are on, well, they're harder on themselves, but on other women, it's just, um, which is why I think I was always drawn to, you know, male-oriented careers just because there's a different team atmosphere when you have all women versus all men and and. And I, I, that's just, I'm only going from some personal experience there, but I just, Oh, no, you know, no, I no. Think... Look, I will tell you, I've worked with lots of women over the time and we had an evidence technician and her, she doesn't mind me because we've talked about it. her name is Sandy Steckline. Her brother was my counselor when I went through the state patrol Academy. She says, I would rather work with 25 men than two women. <laughs> it's just, it's a different dynamic and, and there's some real pluses to it, but sometimes there are some negatives, but we found with jurors sex assaults women in that age group are more they're harder on the victim than and and they're more likely to see that reasonable doubt for lots of and and it could be because they were maybe they've been told to suck it up maybe they've been told like get over it don't be so sensitive don't be this don't and and somehow all of that messaging sinks in and they think that okay now i have to prove it so i'm going to go this way and that's why we now men in that age group, on the other hand, the prosecution would want because there is more likelihood oftentimes of conviction. Uh, so, oh, hell, I'll fly up and do all of you. I'll be <laughs> all of your juries up. There. <laughs> so it's just it was it's interesting. But and the juror selection is fascinating because you only get so many questions. You only get so many rejections. Do you call so you it voir dire use... the same way they do down here? Is it the, yes. or do you have you? OK. Yeah. And you have to, you know, you use those very strategically and you can, you can only know certain things about them, whether they have a criminal record, where they've lived, you know, you try to get the police to find as much background as possible. But again, when you have 250 jurors coming in for selection that day and they're randomly pulled, it can be overwhelming. So you, you know, you want to be ready, but we had a jury um, that both obviously defense and, and prosecutor was acceptable and the makeup of the jury, and then this individual takes the stand. I'm trying to remain as calm and cool as I am without just jumping out of my chair going, yes! Because he admitted what he did under cross-examination. Well, you just... Hold on, hold on. You just can't throw out the punchline here. Let, let tell us, Perry Mason. You know, tell us how did you lead this guy, this idiot? Which he, you you are an idiot. You know, uh, they they say you should never. You know, lawyers tell you all the time, don't speak to the cops and don't take the stand. Right? You know, mm-hmm. it never turns out good. Lead us down. The, help us understand how you led, Mister. You know, Mister. Rocket Science, Mister. Winner of the Darwin Award for criminal stupidity. Yeah. How did you lead this guy down the path? to get him to finally admit on the stand that he had did it? Well, I could tell, first of all, by a lot of the things he presented physically, that he was very much into himself and into how he looked, and he was very proud of that. 
He was also felt that everyone else could see how magnificent he thought he was. So, Are you he... talking about Murph or are you talking about the defendant? <laughs> <laughs> he was, you know, he could really, you could, the body language and the, and the, the nonverbals he's sending out, but the things that he's saying. So I'm asking him, I'm complimenting him. I'm asking him questions that give him an opportunity to tell everyone how incredible he is. So I keep asking, and the more I ask, the more he likes it and the more he, he expands on that. And he's just, you know, about all of the women that love him and they're just fawning over him. And at first, you know, he he did not have sex with this girl. Like, why would he? He doesn't need to. He has way too many other women who are just lining up to be with him. And he's the man. And a few more questions and a few more about people who find him attractive. And, you know, how would you really know how old some of these women are that you're with? Like, is it even possible that, you know, they just present themselves in a certain way? And, they want... and so all of these questions that are just leading a little bit more and a little bit more and backing him into the corner a little bit more. Um, he finally says, yeah, I, she wanted me. Uh... You know, she, of course she did. And that was just like... Did you get a chance to look at the jury's face when he made that statement? I, well, they, so where I was sitting, they were closest to me. They're always closest to the prosecutor for us. So I could see them out of the peripheral and it was just a sense of shock. I really, I was drawn to his lawyer. I looked over at his attorney and just, he. He's over there he shaking his head. Blank. Oh shit. He's just one of those face plants going, blank. oh my God. And so he said, he stood up. Objected, Your Honor, you know, we need to take a break, blah, blah, blah. And um, I knew I had him. I asked a couple more questions. And I said, you know, we're at the prosecution rest. We're finished. And uh, we took a break. And, that's and I'm going to, before you say anything, I'm going to make a guess. Let's see if I'm right. That testimony was so devastating. The defense attorney, I, I'm going to make a guess. He didn't do any recross or he didn't no ask any additional questions, no did he? There right? is no. That's right. You just want to get out of there. It's well, like, oh, my God, let's not bring this up again. And here's why he wanted to take a break, because he wanted to call his secretary to make sure that guy's checking cleared the bank. Because <laughs> <laughs> that guy's going to prison. What a moron. Oh. He went to prison. And, oh, um, and But the thing, he didn't even understand that what he said was wrong. He thought it was like, okay. Him, there was no... I hate to do a sidebar here, but, you know, this is what we're about, right? You know, AD, we have, you know, ADD squirrel look. Um, I was, when I was a detective, we were working, a, had a lady, um, language barrier. She was Hispanic, but her daughter spoke English. But um, she had come home and her live-in boyfriend, when she walked in, he had his hand inside the daughter's pants. Mm -hmm. And um, she's, I think, 11 years old at that time. And so she comes down to the police department. So same thing with you guys. I'm sitting here going, well, we got to call, we got to call this guy in, you know, we got to talk with him. He's probably going to deny it. Then we're going to, it's, yeah. And you know how tough those cases are when it's a, he said, she said, and there's really no physical evidence. Right. And so he comes in and, you know, you've done interview and interrogation before too. We we're talking about this and he starts admitting stuff. It's kind of like, you know, cause as an interviewer too, you got to suck it up. You got to go. I got to pretend that it's okay for an 11 year old to be attracted to you, that it's not really your fault. She came mm -hmm. on to you because, you know, 11 year olds, they're really very mature. So I had a buddy of mine, Larry Watson, put on a white lab coat and come in with a uh, swab and stuff. Well, this guy had washed his hands at home. We were thinking we won't get anything from this, but we still do it. Swab his hands and stuff and take it. And maybe that put plant, but he, anyway, long story short, he ends up admitting it. But the real shock is six months later, as most crime labs are way behind, we get the report back and they found what they call nucleated cells on his hands. We actually now had the physical evidence that he had been in contact and digital penetration of the 11-year-old. And we were shocked. It's kind of like, 
this guy, he washed his hands. He came in, but he admitted everything. It's like, and that's the whole thing is you don't, you cannot understand the depravity of some people right. and the way they think. And like this guy, well, she wanted me. What was I supposed to do? You know, I'm, I'm a little surprised about the, the the female jurors. I had one case in North Carolina, because this is the middle district of North Carolina, so it's a little bit conservative. And the guy had been charged criminally with, with buying kilos of cocaine, converting them into crack, and then selling them out through his little network. And and this was an older white man who had several legitimate businesses. Well, what he was also doing was he was trading rocks of crack cocaine to 15-year-old girls, and rather than and rather than paying money, he would have them stripped down. And he took extremely explicit sexual photographs of them. Well, we seized all his properties, his businesses, and he took us to trial. He pled guilty on the criminal charges, but he took us to trial on the asset seizures. Well, that's a six-person jury, and it's actually a trial you have to prepare for. It's the only one I've ever done in my entire 38 years as a cop. We had a six-woman six women jury on here with two alternate females for this asset trial. He gets on the stand, which opens up everything where we can even show the jurors the photographs that he was taking. It took the jury less than 30 minutes for him to forfeit everything he had to the United States government. What a moron. Well, speaking of morons, so you get this guy, he admits it. How long is the jury out on this? Oh, like that same day they were back. Yeah, so it it was not long. They had a lot to you know, make a decision around because there's the drug charges, the asset forfeiture through the proceeds of crime, the firearm, and then the uh, rape. So there was a lot for them to go over, and but they didn't come back with any questions uh, because they can come back and ask the judge a question to explain, you know, what does this law mean or what what's reasonable right. doubt as far as this goes. There was none of that, but they came back guilty on all charges. And uh, and everyone in the room knew that that was what was going to happen. Everyone except the accused, I think, knew that that's <laughs> what was happening. What, um, uh, was- you know what? Thank God for idiots like that. I mean, it just... But what's such a waste of time? And I won't even... Let's... Oh, you you just get your blood going because you think of guys like that. It's like, what makes you think that you could do stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I had a guy save us a ton of time, um, a similar story, a sex assault on his daughter. She disclosed to a teacher. Teacher comes to us. Uh, of course, it's been some time, so we don't have the physical evidence. I go to interview him, and he asks the following question. Or no, I asked him the following question. What do you think should happen to someone who did that? You didn't do it, but what do you think should happen? He said, well, I think they should get counseling. And so, you know, ding, 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 we have a winner, right? Uh-huh. Because if they're innocent, they're like, they should be, you know, executed at right. high Shoot noon son of a in front and of I'll everybody. Give you the bullet. Yeah. yeah. And, but no, he's like, I think you should get some counseling. And I was like, okay. Do you think they should so, get a second chance? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah they should, you should, totally. should have a chance to go back out into society and do and it prove again. That they're really a good person. <laughs> Two days later, he blows his brains out in his barn. And leaves a note blaming Constable Robinson for accusing him of something that he did not do. That's why he killed himself. Good job, good well, job, he, Pam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Room temperature and, is good for people like that. The, but the problem is he also indicated that his daughter was the problem. And some idiot showed her that note. She didn't oh my find God. I think the mom found him in the note and showed it to her blaming her. She was... I think 13 at the time. Oh my gosh. And so she was this young little innocent thing the first, like when the crime was first reported. And I saw her about eight months later, I was doing a paid duty at a high school dance or something like that. So I'm standing off to the side and I see her. She's a completely different girl. 
with, you know, four or five guys dressed completely differently than she had been before. Like, just devastating. And, you know, you just, that that's a thing I think the public doesn't see either. They, they see these one little nanosecond of someone's life and feel the right to judge it. Right. Not having any understanding about all the other things that have happened. And I think working undercover, that was... That was a gift because you really get to see how people live and there's kids. You know, we, we talk about the bikers because Hell's Angels were involved in some of the projects and some of the things we did. But nobody ever talks about the little kids. Like, there was always kids at those houses. Right. And that's, you know, people listen to some of the comments we make in there and they're probably thinking, boy, you're some cold-hearted SOBs, you know, like we say, good job, Pam, that he killed himself. Mm-hmm. But you yeah. look at the detrimental effect he had on family members, oh. the community. He had no remorse. He thought everything was okay. You know, that, when you see this, you know, go look at that for 38 years and tell me how you feel about stuff like that. 100%. You know? 100%. Well, and to blame a 13-year-old, I, I tell you. Um, it's horrible. It's horrible. Well, we all agree this guy was a piece of shit, uh, both of them, you know, but there was, you had talked about before about Hell's Angels. What was, do you have some fun with some of the Hell's Angels, whether you're working dope or as a prosecutor? So, because there's a very famous Hell's Angels that still wanted out of Canada. And his name is is David McDonald Carroll, a.k.a. Wolf. And he is still, I was just checking the RCMP Most Wanted site this morning. He's still there. So what do you know about this guy? Well, the project that I uh, worked with with my husband Kevin, we of course start street level, and as you we we grew pretty quickly. Like no one expected us to get out of this little town, but we had done a great job. We were buying larger quantities, getting other into other communities, and where we were working was the eastern part of Ontario, so closer to Quebec. And the nomads out of Quebec, the nomad chapter, of the Hell's Angels, would um, be in and out and breaking into this territory. And one of our targets turned out to be his ex-brother-in-law, Wolf's ex-brother-in-law. So he had a connection to the East and to H.A. Coke through, you know, a guy who through a guy, like how their whole chain of command works. So we were buying that and um, we never got to see Wolf, obviously, but um, it was really fascinating to deal with all of his minions. And here's here's an interesting story around how politics and policing works. So this wait a minute, project... there's politics and policing. Steve, have you ever heard of that before? <laughs> never, no, never, never, never. No, I was <laughs> must be a Canadian was, thing. That is yeah. totally Canadian thing. So, <laughs> at, you know, we're this provincial force, and this. What happens sometimes, and I'm sure it happens there as well, is that municipal forces get taken over by larger forces just because of, you know, the tax base or it's unaffordable for small communities to have policing or they just don't have the resources. You know, they have a few guys working, but they don't have a homicide unit, a drug unit, all of those things. So it's attractive uh, financially for some communities to then amalgamate with the Ontario Provincial Police. And of course, everybody wants something from that. So... I did not know that going into this project that this community that we were assigned to work in was under negotiations to be taken over by the OPP. And the OPP wanted to go in and show everybody that, you know, we we can do a great job here and this is, we're very useful, etc. And we start buying larger quantities of dope, which means we outgrow this small community. And so we want to start going into these other towns and bigger towns. And they're like, no, you have to buy the dope in that town. And we're like, well, how, how do we just buy it? Like, we can get, you know, um, 
half half of an ounce here, but we can get like a QP up the road. So why QP wouldn't we? QP is a quarter pound. Yeah, see, all of you cops and you're in acronyms, you know, it's like I constantly with Steve and his buddies, I got to say, okay, tell people what's OSADEF, what's this? That's one I've never heard, QP. A QP? Yeah, now, so, I thought you said QT, a QT, QP, no, keep it QP. up, keep the QP so, on the QT and don't tell the VIP. <laughs> so we're trying, you know, and we're, because that's what you, the bigger quantities are what obviously is important. You know, these street level guys, that's your way in. You want to get to the guys who are controlling the show. And that's where we were going. So we had organized a two-ounce hand-to-hand deal with one of the HA, which one of the Hells Angels, which as an undercover cop does not happen. Like it is so rare that you can get in there to do those types of things, especially a smaller, like a street-level project. So we're just thinking, okay, this is phenomenal. We go back, we tell our bosses. They're like, no, no, go and get a two gram sample and we're like you here here's how a sample works when you're working undercover you you want a two gram sample here's four rails up your nose that's your fucking sample like Mm -hmm. you don't get a it's not you're not shopping at sears you're not like right you know going to the corner store or getting a sample of makeup this is like going through costco or one of the other stores here's a little sample of our nuts here's this you know here's the beef jerky you know and who's telling you to get a sample Our, our well the the direct supervisor who is now in a relationship with the investigator whose municipal force is where we're working okay who has no experience in narcotics. Who has no experience. That's who couldn't buy an aspirin in a drugstore. Right. So, <laughs> so we're, we're devastated because do you know the credibility you lose when you show up to a deal and tell them you don't have the money? Well, <laughs> they never think you're a cop because a cop would never do that. I guess we, you know, we blew some heat if there was any, but we we just couldn't believe it and then things started to get a little bit more complicated because now we have an inn where i just ordered um through the same guy wolf's brother-in-law i had uh we negotiated a deal for $250,000 in ecstasy that he was bringing in through a contact wow. out of Amsterdam so to go from this little project where we we're buying grams of weed to start cuz right through to there in 10 months time was pretty amazing. So we organized this deal to happen on, um, on rip day on, on the day of the rips. So the rips, uh, for any listeners who don't know what that is, it's you work your way up and now you're going to order as large a quantity as dope from every dealer you've dealt with, with the intention of ripping them off. They get arrested, held without a phone call so that the undercover officer can continue going and getting as much dope without spending any money as possible. So it's a win-win, um, but it's also pretty dangerous. You cheap off bastards! Drug- you don't want to pay for the stuff <laughs> you're buying. Oh my god! Ripping off drug dealers is always an interesting game. So on and it's this a little date, satisfying too, isn't it? Yeah. It's very satisfying. <laughs> so on this date, Kevin had been taken out of the play because we couldn't get a flash roll. The same boss would not give us the flash roll for the deal. So we had to come up with some of this on our own which we did, and uh, but Kevin had to pretend as though he was having an affair with a stripper up north and he left me on my own because he, you know, as the guy in the project, he's on the hook for this money. But with me, I pretend like I have no idea 
what they're talking about. I'm still going to do this deal because Kevin has left me high and dry. He took all of our money, so I need to make the money through this deal. So Wolf's brother-in-law, Bill, says, okay, we're going we're gonna to do it. So we get into the, the whole play is supposed to be, I'm going to be driving my undercover vehicle, a Jeep. The cover team is going to be blocks away, but they'll be able to see me pull out of the driveway so they'll know when to start following so they can get the takedown team in place for where we're supposed to do this drop. Except we don't get into my Jeep because now Bill's back end, the guy who's brought the ecstasy, decides he wants to drive his car, so I have to get in his car. I'm not wired. I'm not armed. I just have... <laughs> oh, the pucker factor just went up. Uh-oh. Yeah. So I get into the car. Now I get into the back seat purposely because um, back end and Bill are in the front. And Kevin's brother was also undercover at one time and had a gun put to the back of his head from a guy in the back seat where they pulled the trigger and it misfired. So we've always been super cautious about making sure that there's never a drug dealer sitting behind us. So Kevin and I were always, I was always in, one of us would be in the back seat at all times. So anyway, I get into the back seat, we're going. And the cover team after a few minutes realizes, holy shit, they've left and like, they didn't take the right car. So now they're scrambling. They call me on my cell phone. Get out of the car. Get out of the car. And we're driving. Like, we are literally, the car is moving. We are driving. And I can see one of the takedown vehicles starting to get up. They're like, you've got to get out of the car now. I jumped out of the car. I hit the dirt. And it's not like Hollywood where you do this roll and you look like a gymnast getting up. Like I literally hit like a sack of cement. The car drives off. Anyway, they get taken down. But just before I'm jumping, Bill turns around to grab me because he know he sees this vehicle coming. He hears my phone call. Like I don't know what he could hear, but he knew instinctively that this had just gone off the rails. Yeah. How and, fast were um, you going when you decided foolishly to jump out of a moving vehicle? I would say no more than probably 40 clicks an hour like so what's that 20 something miles an hour like Uh, okay i'm just gonna hop out of a vehicle at 20 miles an hour you know (laughs) yeah it was uh it hurt i had a crazy (laughs) road rash no shit i can't imagine there's an understatement (laughs) but the adrenaline the adrenaline was because i remember he's they're getting taken off and i still have to pretend Uh, you know, or in my brain, I know that my gig is up, right? They know who I am at this point, or they know something is wrong with Mm me. So I get up and start running, like I'm running away from the cops. And I run to the hotel where we were supposed, and they had no reason to take us off because we were literally on the road to the hotel where we were supposed to meet my back end, which of course is another undercover officer. And then we're going to do the hand to hand And once he sees the dope, his hat's coming off, the takedown team comes in, everybody's safe, no problem. But because they didn't see me in my car, they they freaked out that I was not going to be stopping where we're supposed to stop. And so they took us off at that moment. And you know what? When you're on the surveillance end of this and you lose sight and you lose track of your undercover as an agent, a brother or sister police officer... It's the that's when the alarms go off. Everything else is is secondary. You know the the life, the safety of that undercover is primary. Well, what Pam's not telling the audience here is she had so much adrenaline where she hopped out of the vehicle. The hotel was fourteen miles away. She <laughs> ran it in seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Forrest Gump, here I come. Oh, oh so the, the other cop who I was supposed to meet, who was my back end, was a guy named Stoney, and he looks like Mr. Burns from from the uh, the Simpsons. Like he's just like this teardown guy, yeah. and I go in and I'm just like, ah, oh, you know, I, I'm just bound, I'm levitating. There's so much adrenaline and excitement going on. He's like. Would you just like sit the fuck down? Shut up! I'm watching Sally. He was watching Sally Jesse Raphael on the TV or something. Oh my he's god! Like, he's like, would you just calm down? Priorities. Seriously. Yeah. The show will be over in twelve minutes. That's okay. exactly, exactly. And then he's like, "Did you get the dope?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, we got the dope." Well, then sit down. Like, okay, okay. What's the pro- what's the problem? Yeah. So how did that turn out? How did that finally turn out? How did your rips go? How did everything go that day on your Yeah, operation? we got 70 bodies. Um, 70? Wow. 70, yeah. So nice. that was a good It was a good project. It was a great takedown. Um, you know, I'll give you one quick example of, of something that the public never sees because they think, you know, we're all assholes and we're just out to make as many charges as we can and that we're out ruining people's lives because we're pretending to be someone that we're not. But there was a woman on this project by the name of Sharon, and she was... Uh, you know, a taxi driver, that's how we met her. And she was working for one of the main dealers in town, but it didn't start out that way. She had recovered from cancer. And this guy was a family friend who was bringing her, you know, soup, helping pay her rent when she was too sick to work. This is the story she had told me. And so when she got better, he said, okay, now it's, you you owe me, right? So now you're going to deal for me. So she starts dealing for him. And like, I'm not going to say she was Snow White. She, she had like a minimal criminal record, but she wasn't like some big, you know, deal. And so she's dealing. But then the problem is she gets her head in the bag. So she starts using the product as almost as much as she's selling the product. So things start to take a bit of a detour. And she's going to and, you know, we're, we've bought a lot from her. She's introduced us, etc. And then about three days before rip day, three, da- three days before takedown, she gets kicked out of her house because he's not paying her anymore. She's in debt. She's, you know, all these things have happened or she's lost her job. She has this cat and she said, you know, Pam, I, I don't have anywhere to go except my friend's house. Can let me sleep on the couch, but they won't let me bring a cat because they have dogs and blah, blah, blah. Can you look after my cat? I think, oh my God, I gotta look like now I've got somebody's cat. We're literally 72 hours away from her going to jail. All of this happening. So I look after this cat and then I find a place for this cat. I, you know, do all these things to make sure this cat It is wasn't okay. under the hood of a police car in the park. It was not under the hood of a police car. There was no ketchup and hoses involved at all. And so we go to pretrial with her and, you know, Kevin and I both stepped up for her and said, look, this woman, you know, she was, of course, she did a lot of bad things. But at the same time, here's the backstory for a lot of the things that had happened, because we learned some things about when she was younger and all the different things and how this guy had sort of groomed her and then placed her in this position um, over time. Anyway, she that was definitely reflected on her sentencing. So we didn't just say, hey, everybody's got to get you know prosecuted to the max and they did this and did that. We tried to take a, an approach that looked at everything and i think so and i think in policing we always do that you know it's yeah we talk about uh you know guys doing this and doing that and and there's all of that but we also take the time to take a look at you know bigger picture stuff and i think that so often um the public doesn't see that like i'm sure steve you met so many people uh in your career and even you know that time during narcos where there would be some of those guys that are like you know what they're doing a terrible thing they're not bad people necessarily but they're definitely doing 
awful things or they're involved in drugs, but you can kind of see how maybe they had to be because of family relationships or things that were happening. I don't know. but You did hear uh, on the smaller scale, but, but those guys in Colombia, <laughs> there was no... <laughs> Uh, there was no reason to think there was a good side to them whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> these, were, these were stone cold murderers. Yeah. But, no, we didn't deal a lot with them, but you know, you're exactly right because you know, people want to say, well, the, you know, the law should be black and white. That's not true. It's, it's nah. police officers can't look at it that way. You got to look at the, the totality of the circumstances. Shades is what, of gray. Yeah. What it's referred to. And you know, this guy manipulated that girl. This is exactly what Pablo Escobar, he manipulated people to get what he wanted. And and so he has manipulated this person when they're down and out, having you know extremely tough medical uh, circumstances that they have no control over. And then, you know what? When they start dipping in the bag, like you're talking about, and become addicted, it just gets worse and worse. And getting out of that bag is is extremely tough for those people. Well, you got to decide what's good for society at that point. Is it to really prosecute this person and stuff? You know and it's a value decision. You know, it's a value judgment you make, but it's like not everybody needs to have be jammed with charges and go to prison for 50 right. years. Is that, you can't arrest your way out of problems 100%. like this. And 100%. there were, and there were, um, there are times also when, you know, you talk about law enforcement, you know, fireman shows up, everybody likes to see the fireman come, not so much with the law enforcement, but there were times when we would take uh, significant drug dealers out of neighborhoods that were dealing out of residences and the people, you know, you come in, you do the raid, and you got to process the site, and, it, and you're there for a few hours. But when you get in your cars and you're all driving, driving down the streets, the residents, the other residents came out on the street and applauded us as wow. we were driving down the street. Yeah. You want to talk about a good feeling? No mm-hmm. better feeling in the world than to, to know that you had a positive effect on these people's neighborhood and on their lives. Well, don't get a big head, Murphy. They were applauding because you were leaving. We're finally tired of this guy. <laughs> He's leaving. Yeah, thank you very get much. Get that white boy out of here. <laughs> get, that, get that hillbilly out of here. Yeah, and the feeling of safety for those people, you know, to know their kids can now go outside or that they can right. do things is just and Well, they that's get their neighborhood back. Yeah, they, yeah, get, they get the neighborhood back. Hey, so... um. What so? But let's talk about Wolf here. You know, uh, David Carroll. Did mm-hmm. now this was while you were working uh, UC then, right? Was yes. did did you guys did was he ever in custody at any point, or did he flee the country? He well, there's a couple of theories uh, because he's wanted, I think, for thirteen or fourteen murders, um, and it all stems around the the drug war. You know, the banditos and the Hell's Angels that were happening in Quebec, and so there's um, there's lots of stuff that. You know, I guess they you could call it urban renewal is what they were doing there. So he's wanted on those homicides. Um, and he, though a lot of them had just started happening right in around the time we were there. And we could never see him. Nobody really contacted him. And then the two streams of thought, one is that um, that the upper echelons and the Hells Angels took him out. And because they were getting pretty close, um, he was getting close to being captured because there was so much attention. Or that he went to Australia because allegedly there's been sightings in Australia. So um, nobody really knows, but he has not been seen since since then. Yeah, I pulled down the wanted poster. Uh, David Carroll is wanted in connection with these events. He is a suspect in multiple crimes, including having caused the death of 13 people, attempted murder, conspiracy to commit murder, participation in gang activities, conspiracy and drug trafficking. Now, the nice thing I like about Australia, they have a way of shortening up names and doing stuff. In Australia, the article said a bad bikey, not a biker, but a bikey, a bad yeah. bikey, mate, might be down in our area. Yeah. You know, we'll just put another yeah. shrimp on the bobby and we'll go out and arrest <laughs> yeah. this lad, you know. 
Yeah. So now if you guys see him, you know, obviously don't attempt to arrest him. He's 68 now. He was born in April of 52. So he's 68. Um, Dang, he's brown older hair. than you, Morgan. And now I'm, I'm Steve. Let's, <laughs> there goes your memory again, you know. <laughs> and you Steve. guys are, ha- you have some HA that are coming on your show, right? You have some. Oh, we well, do. Some angels? Yes, we are working on that currently. So we can't disclose anything yet because uh, we want to keep this mysterious. Not that there's anything exciting, like here, but if no, you I keep it mysterious. It's, it's you know, awesome. Awesome. We've it's, got some. I think we've got some really good guests. Well, that's why you're on the show because of uh, your association <laughs> with Hell's Angels. That's the only reason you're here. <laughs> yeah. That we, and because we only bring in the best guests. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, and you know the Hell's. You can't use their logo or their name or anything. Oh, they, this the, is a business. Tell, they have trademarked because, it. They. Yes, it's about yeah, the brand. They understand marketing the brand. Yeah. Well, let's. Very but but so let's kind of uh, close out here because. Um, Oh, by the way, just to finish up, brown hair, hazel eyes. He's 181 pounds, five foot eleven. Uh, got a Hell's Angel tattoo on his upper back. So if you see him in Australia, mate, tie him up, get a roo, tie him to a roo, bring him into the local constables. That's my bad Australian accent, but you know, whatever, wanker. You know, piss off, as I say down there. But uh, but but you. So you did. You were a prosecutor for 10 years, and then you decided I've had enough of this shit. So you've got 22 years in as a cop, 10 years as a prosecutor. Why no, I had twelve. I had twelve. Oh, 12. My husband's oh, 12. twenty-two. Yeah, twenty-two. Okay, so um, so you 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 punch out, and it's like, so did you have an end game when you punched out, or did you just decide now it's the time to get out? You know, I think it was because our son was now getting more competitive with skiing, and we used to take long holidays out west to ski in the Rockies, and when we looked at you know the finances, we were. Really, things had gone well for both Kevin and I in our life, so we were able to... Were any of those proceeds from the rips that you talked about? <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Be nice now. So we we were super lucky. So we, we moved out uh, west, left our jobs. We took what, early retirement, I guess, and um, we came out here and skied. And then, you know, like happens, people ask you, you know, your stories and you'd be at cocktail parties, how'd you meet your husband? And I'd be like, oh, you know, here we met working undercover and... Well, that, you know, like so-and-so on TV or whatever. And can you come talk to this group? Can you come and talk about this? And so I was doing some of that for free because it was interesting. And I thought, you know, I love to talk, as you can tell. So we're, we're telling our stories. And then I realized through a friend, you can actually make, make money doing that. this. You can do this. So I thought, you know, our son's now getting, a, you know, he's 16 and I can travel more. So just, uh, I started speaking and it was, it was going really well. Of course, then the pandemic hits and everything gets shut down and, um, but you know, pivoting to virtual things. And that's where I first, uh, saw Steve was at the global fraud, um, conference. He and Javier were the keynotes and I was, uh, in a smaller session, but I had the good fortune of getting a ticket to this conference. Of course, I'm a paid speaker there, which is super cool, but then I get, you know, I get to watch the whole conference. I'm like, Kev, the guys from Narcos are going to be at the same conference as me. So we pull up a chair, get it on the computer. We're watching. I'm taking screenshots of like Pablo's <laughs> fancy jail cell because I'm thinking, does it look like it did on the show? And, you know, super fangirling out here with uh, with Kevin. Then we're showing our son. And um, yeah, it was. Uh, and then we just reached out to Steve and I said, hey, you know, this is loved your session. This is amazing. And um uh, 
You know what it is, is, is her and Kevin were sitting there talking, and after they saw her presentation, they thought, if these two idiots can do this, <laughs> certainly we can do this, right? You know, I feel like this is a Brady Bunch commercial. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It's Steve, Steve, Steve all the time. Steve this, Steve that. That's called, hey, it's called jealousy. I used to be a contender. I used to be somebody. Uh, Keyword being used to be. Used to be. Used to be. All right. Well, but so, so, um, so you started doing that, so but you branched out a little bit too because you started doing things around trust building, obviously skills, and we talked about this too. I used to instruct behavior analysis and interview and interrogation, and you really get good about reading people. And I said, you know, if you can read people doing this, you can read people in business because sh- here's a shock. Some people do lie in business negotiations. <gasps> okay. Oh, jeez. Steve, you've dealt with a few agents. You've dealt with some guys. I won't mention their names or where they're at, but uh, you've been hosed a couple times. Oh, yeah. That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how did you get into that part of your business? How did you get into doing that part of it? You know, we t- I was talking about, um, you know, some of the, of course, you talk about the stories, but what are the takeaways from, you know, being locked in a drug house or jumping out of a car and doing all the things and what, what could you have done differently? What did you see? And so I started dissecting that because I studied corporate negotiations in graduate school before law school. And all the drug deals are negotiations, all the people you're dealing with as a prosecutor, it's all negotiations. Everything comes down to that. But what is it? It's not because people lie all the time. I, I lived a life lying as an undercover officer. I was lying about who I was, but what is it that really, you know, sets people apart. How can you tell? What can you look for? So I started dissecting all of those different things. What was it that told me this was going to go sideways before it happened? Their lips were moving. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what are some of the things that are happening that, you know, you, you see it and some people are really good at it and other people are clueless when it comes to reading people. They don't know when the conversation is over. They don't know when they've just been lied to. Like, and I mean obvious signs that they've been lied to. Um, there's that truth bias that's happening for people. So what is it that really are the principles you can boil down around nonverbal communication? So then I started studying that and looking at you know the Harvard negotiation courses and looking at all of the research that's coming back. The problem is the research and all of those types of techniques are conducted in labs in low stake scenarios by people who are studying university students. And that is like learning what the criminal code says and thinking like I did initially as a new police officer that you had to do all of those little, it's real life and book life, completely different. And the book life stuff is great when you want to read, you know, negotiate to yes or all of that kind of stuff because there's low stake scenarios or you're dealing with rational people. But the majority of the time, whether we're dealing in business or whether we're dealing in drugs, Um, the rational part of people isn't there. It's the emotional part of people. So what are you looking for and how can you tell that that's happening? And I think that that really fine-tuned for me as a prosecutor because it wasn't what they were saying. It was how they were saying it that made all the difference in the case because that told you what question, what stimulus to present next so that within those five seconds after presentation of the evidence or the stimulus, you could watch for the reaction. and let that silence happen, let their let their facial expressions and their hand movements and all those things tell you if you're on the right track. And if you are, that's where you really zone in on your questions. And a lot of people don't realize, but what she's saying, nonverbal behavior is a more accurate indicator of the truth than what you say. It's what you do than what you say and do, and then what you say and do armed with the case facts. But if you want, if you can, 
it's interesting. You can turn off the audio and watch a videotape of somebody talking, and you can get a real good sense to whether they're being truthful or not by their reactions, by their body language, by their behavior. But you got to be careful not to read too much into this. I remember instructing a guy one time. He says, I know she's lying. Why? Because her arms are crossed. Yeah. I said, what is the temperature in the room? Mm-hmm. Went back and checked. It's like, it was cold. Even the interviewer had his arms yeah. crossed. It's like, okay, well, let's what, not get too far study- ahead of ourselves, Skippy. One study I read that I think is pretty interesting and accurate is they looked at who is the best at being able to discern and interpret body language. And it's prisoners in maximum security prisons that are in for violent crimes. They are, when they have been studied, they they can sense when that fight's going to happen, when there's danger, when there's things. Of course, not all of them, but some of them have a finely tuned sense of how to read body language. So they've done some studies on that and what they're looking for in their victims. And one interesting thing, the number one thing all of the research says about when people are looking at victim, they showed uh, a lot, I think it was like 250 was their sample of either rapists or murderers. And they showed them videos of people so they could be old, young, different race, uh, different gender, ages, all of those things. And you would think that it would be, you know, a certain type of female that would be the target for most. It wasn't. There was the only thing that was in common, the number one thing that was in common for all of the victims was their gait, how they walked. All of the prisoners chose people who walked and appeared a certain way with their body language. Um, And when I was looking at some stuff around Ted Bundy, of course, you know, famous, uh, probably been studied to death. I'll just paraphrase a quote of his. He said he knew who he was going to target based on the way she walked. He knew that that was the one he was. So I find that very interesting, um, just how we pick up on these signals, but we don't even know that we're picking up on these signals. Well, no, that's the FBI did a study of uh, people who were in prison for uh, killing law enforcement officers. And there was two things that they looked at. One thing is your presence. You know, if you showed up and your uniform was sloppy, higher chance that they were going to engage you. And the other thing they looked at is it's your weapon. And back in the old days, too, before they really got into semi-automatics enough, but when I first started, we had pistols. We'd put these things on there called Packmire grips. So you take the wood handles off, you know, and so if you had that attention to detail, and that's one reason, I'll tell you, uh, as a state trooper, one of the things they invested in was the uniform. They were all custom tailored. They came in, they took your measurements, everything from the hat to the uniform, because if you were sloppy and if you look sloppy out there, a higher chance that you were going to be engaged. Like you said, because these guys, they were experts at reading body yeah. language. It's like the lion on the Serengeti, you know, they can figure out which one's the weak one of the herd and then you 100%. call the weak one out of the herd. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Of course it is, Steve, because I said it. Oh, geez, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> So, is there anything I say that's not accurate? Please. I can't uh, believe we're doing this again. We don't have a we, – we probably have a special episode just to go over that one question you had right there, Morgan. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you can but, remember it tomorrow, we'll have that episode. Yeah, <laughs> true. I'll have to go back and review this. So, Pam, you, you are now available because we want to promote what you're doing. You know, uh, Tell us about your website, and, and if people are interested, how would they get a hold of you? Well, it's just PamelaBarnum.com, Barnum like the circus, um, which is pretty much, you know, my life with, uh, with you, my You never thought you were going to join the circus until you didn't. joined OPP, no. right? <laughs> he claims that there's a distant relation between him and P.T. Barnum, but I, I can't be certain of that. Was that because uh, there's a sucker born every minute? Wasn't that well, his famous thing? <laughs> yes, and he's the greatest showman, yeah. greatest showman. So, uh, yeah, and I, I, I have, I'm represented by several speaking bureaus, so if there's a bureau that people deal with, that's how I how I work, but 
Um, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I love it. I, I love talking about things and just helping people sort of take it to the next level. As far as influence, I think nonverbals are all around influence and trust building. And, um, and that's what I like to talk about. And for those folks that want to hire you, what is the exchange right now between the uh, Canadian dollar and U.S. dollar? Do we need to wait a while? Will it, will it get better? <laughs> That's what I love. I can hardly wait for everything to get back to normal because uh, traveling through the States is amazing. I tell you, no one rolls out the red carpet better than when you come into America. And uh, they, you guys love Canadians. I tell you, we are treated. Because you're so damn very Look, I well. I was telling you. No, I got to tell you this story, too. So, my buddy. <laughs> by the way, what was the name of your detachment, your first detachment that you went to? Tilsonburg. Oh, that's right. He was South Porcupine Detachment. And I used to kid him. I said, You Canadians are so nice. I bet, Mac, when you go on vacation, the bur- you actually call up the burglars and say, hey, look, Bob, hey, I'm going to be gone for a week. Just appreciate you not breaking into anything. Oh, yeah, for sure, Mac. We'll do that. Not a problem. Where are you going on vacation, Mac? Well, Bob, I'm not going to tell you that now. You know, And just everybody – and Canadians are so nice. Like I say, by the time we're done, you're apologizing to us for us insulting you. You guys are so great. Yeah. Well, I think it was cool. When we saw Fahrenheit – was it the Fahrenheit movie or something that uh, Michael Moore did about Canadians oh, yeah. not locking their doors? I remember all the guys I'm working with and people I know in policing and prosecuting were like – where is he? Like that is nowhere that we know. Canadians are, um, we have our fair share of problems here for sure, but, uh, yeah, but we all do. If people, you know, listeners check Pamela out, you know, she's got her videos posted on her website there. You can get an idea of, of, uh, her presentation skills, which are phenomenal by the way. Thank you. Uh, and we, and we are just so honored to have you on here. It, and I got to tell you, it's, it's kind of funny because Kevin and I were exchanging emails and I just told him, hey, we're, you know, this is what we're working on now. We're coming up with a podcast. And he dimed you right out. He's like, man, you, you need to have this good-looking blonde on there with police experience <laughs> and became a federal prosecutor. <sighs> and I mentioned it to Morgan. It's like, he's absolutely right. That's exactly who we need to have on the podcast. So thank you very much yeah. for being with us. Thank you. Last fun. question for you, though. Forgot to ask yeah. you this. Did you prosecute the mom that gave up her daughter yes. for dope? All right. Yes. Good. What would you charge her with? <laughs> She was charged with possession. Um, we couldn't prove that that is how the daughter came to be, um, but we knew that. We just couldn't prove that, but she was. She just had a possession charge. Sorry, you can see my ADD. That was sitting out there, and all of a sudden, I said, I forgot to ask you that. So, hey, no <laughs> Well, actually, there is one more question, all right? Um, and I know the answer to this, but I'm not going to give it up if you don't want to. You guys are working on a new project. Ah, is that something you yes. want to talk about now? We, we are working on a new project, and uh, it's it's all around uh, our story, mostly mine because there's not a lot of women who do what I do and and uh, or have you know worked undercover and then became a prosecutor. So we've been approached and have an agent for um, a television show. So it's out there sitting with a couple of studios and fingers crossed, but Steve, you know better than anyone how that works. It's uh, you don't know. It doesn't don't happen quickly, happen. does it? It doesn't happen quickly. Oh, boy, can we tell you about that? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, and you talk, you know, people think uh, law enforcement and drug dealers and so forth is a cutthroat business. Let me tell you, TV and movies. (laughs) Oh, my God. They're on top of the pile. What a cutthroat. Steve and I are working with our agent right now and, and another group. We're working on a contract deal. But it's like I said, I'm not a woman, but I can I feel like right now I'm like, 10 months pregnant and I'm going, when's the baby coming? When's the yeah. baby due? You know, <laughs> patience is the, is the key. Oh, you sure. got to have patience. Oh, All yeah. right. Well, Pam, I know you're up there in the great white North. You want to go out and go do some skiing and uh, drink some wine and don't stay away from Molson, man. You got to get some real beer. No, I'm 50, 
50 is the beer for you, trust me. 50? All right, well, 50. we'll we'll have to compare we'll do that. We'll come back together, we'll compare notes. Perfect. We'll do a beer we'll do a beer episode. Awesome. Uh, Steve I'm Steve in. can't Steve quit. Steve doesn't drink anymore. He doesn't drink any less, but he doesn't drink anymore is what he says, but no, but we'll do that. Hey, but look, good luck on that stuff. We know that when this comes out, you start traveling again, you get down to this area, obviously let us know. We wish you the best of luck on this stuff. And whatever you do, don't break a leg. They say usually in show business, break a leg. Well, you're out there on the slopes. Don't <laughs> break right. a leg yeah. and uh, stay safe. Thanks. Well, hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that. Pam was... Uh, <laughs> I, I busted her chops. She's Canadian. And as predicted, she spent half her time saying I'm sorry and apologizing to me because <laughs> the Canadians are so damn nice. That's some of the nicest people in the world. Holy cow. Uh, uh, and this, I'm telling you, if you're not impressed, she jumps out of a fucking moving car, people. How many yeah. people do that? I'm sorry. Well, just I'm sorry. going up going up against these bikers and, and that story about the mother who was trading her baby for uh, drugs. Dude, I, just, I mean, it just... I just, Ugh. you know, that's the kind of stuff people deal with. But hey, this is a great episode. So remember, if you like that episode, just go to Apple Podcast, hit that five stars, folks. It is magic. It is abs- It's like going to Disney. It's a magical experience. We don't know why it works. We don't know how it works. All we know is that it works. There you so go. So make it work by helping us hit that five stars. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. More info about the show. Like I say, when we get pictures and additional stuff, uh, especially like Murph in a bikini, we will be posting that kind of stuff there. You have those pictures, oh don't you, Murph? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there's something to just turn your stomach. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to turn your stomach, follow us also on places like Game of Crimes on Twitter, uh, at Game of Crimes on Facebook, Game of Crimes Podcast on Instagram. And again, if, uh, if you feel like donating to the cause and helping us out, as again, we invest this back into equipment, studios, we want to make this good, go to paypal.com, use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and even bring you more exciting content. And Steve, speaking of supporting people and supporting the show, where can people hear more about Pam? Yes, so if you want to check her out, Look online at Pamela Barnum, B-A-R-N-U-M dot com. She's a keynote speaker. She travels around the world. She's a body language expert, and she teaches uh, nonverbal techniques to detect deception, which is kind of cool. You know, in our law enforcement training, we go through classes like that, but uh, <laughs> never had an instructor that looked as nice as Pamela. So uh, <laughs> check her out. You know, if you got a conference coming up, consider her. She's consider a, a her. Fun- and by the way. Keep watching the TV because we were just in contact with her. We didn't get the final word right before this show had to go to air, but they they are working on a contract with CBS. They, there may be a show in her future and your future, so we'll let you guys know. All right. Hey, and Steve, before we finally say goodbye to everybody, let's give everybody just a quick taste of what's coming up next week. Uh, again, another person that you found, Lou Velozzi, or as we call him, Sal Nunziato. Man, just uh, this story, and he's got a book coming out called Storefront, you know, about yep. operations that the ATF did. I mean, th- I, I'm, I'm excited for this one because this one, we're going to let you guys know, but I'm pretty sure this is going to be a two-parter. We'll let you know when the episode comes out. But if it's a two-parter, it'll drop on Monday, and then part two will drop on Thursday. But, Steve, I'm telling you, man, uh, and he is so transparent. He is, and, and that's the cool thing about Lou. You see this guy, he's a mountain of a man. He's still he's still buffed. You know, he infiltrated motorcycle gangs. He ran ATF's, uh, I call it back in firearms, storefront operations for years and years and years. And the, when we say he's transparent, when his book, uh, you know, I got to read a, a draft copy, and, and he 
was uh, I got I was honored by being able to write a little blurb to for him to put in his book. Uh, but when you read through it and you see what the effect of working undercover long term was on him as well as his family, it almost destroyed his family. And in the law enforcement culture, for somebody to come out and talk about that is very unusual. So this is this is an interview you absolutely want to hear. Come join us next week. Yep. All right. So everybody, thank you. We'll see you next week and get ready. Become a player in the biggest game of all, the game of crimes. 